Jim Ford. I'm Dan Kurtzke. I'm Chad Bokelman. And I'm Adam Murdo. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 94. Nice. Just, <laughs> I guess this is the one time in the series Jim's not going to have some weird comment after the number. Well, no, I was just thinking about how, like, I always have trouble remembering what the intro is. And it's so freaking simple, like, how do I possibly forget that? Hey, you came <laughs> up with it, too. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, as everybody just heard, we have we have company this time around. Chad! Yeah. <laughs> no, joining us from from Comic Geek Speak is the the man, the myth, the legend, the vehicle for sideburns, Adam Murdo. Gentlemen. Uh, it's it's great to have you, Ron. It's great. It really That's is. Great to be here. Yes. The subject near and dear to my heart we're talking about tonight. Yes, and that subject would be. The 1994 DC Comics event, Zero Hour, Crisis in Time. Oh, yeah. Crowd goes wild. <laughs> the crowd goes mild. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right, well, you know what? Let's get right into it. Now, before we start taking a look at the actual book itself, I thought it would be cool if we like went around the room and just kind of gave our own personal histories with this story, because I think out of the four of us, we're going to have four completely different backgrounds <laughs> as related to Zero Hour. So, um, you know, Jim, why don't you start? Okay. I had been reading comics for about four or five years at this point. Uh, I got in right around 89, 90. And, uh, like, you know, I had been picking up all different types of comics. But uh, by this point, like, I was I was going mainly DC, Superman, and, and then Green Lantern. And then, you know, Zero Hour hit, and, like, this is the time where I lucked out because I actually had a steady comic shop to go to, you know, in the area. It had been kind of sporadic before that, but uh, every week that this this series came out, like, I was at the comic shop, you know, just, like, waiting for the next issue because I was dying to know what happened. Awesome. What about you, Chad? Uh, I'm sure Adam will cringe at this, but I actually read Zero Hour before I ever even heard of Crisis. Um, oh, no cringes yeah. here, Chad. Nope. <laughs> uh, Zero Hour, I guess I picked it up because when I was just a paltry listener of the Lantern Cast rather than co-host, it was, uh, I saw Parallax on the cover and I was like, hmm, maybe I should read this. And I was completely lost the first time I read it, but it was still a fun story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly new comics reader, uh, you know, hopped in within the last three years or so. And after reading Crisis, you know, uh, for the first time only a few months ago, I don't know, I, I enjoy Crisis a lot, but uh, Zero Hour, because it was my first, my first, uh, I guess if you want to say my first crisis of some kind, it'll always hold a little special place in my heart. Plus, you know, hey, Parallax is the, the central central villain bad guy, so. Oh, yeah. Spoilers, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined it. You've ruined it. <laughs> uh, what about you, Adam? Uh, well, actually, my story uh, is pretty close to well to the parts of both Jim's and Chad's. And you know, I said I wasn't cringing at all when you said you read Zero Hour before you read Crisis, Chad. But actually, yeah, that's the case for me too. Because uh, back in 1994, I was relatively new to comics myself. Um, I had uh, been reading for about two years. Um, in 1992, Marvel's Infinity War event was my uh, gateway drug into the hobby. Uh, and for the first couple of years, though, I was pretty much an exclusively Marvel reader. 
Uh, then I started to dabble a little bit in DC during the following two years. Um, first DC comic I bought was The Death of Superman. And the second one was, you know, appropriately enough for uh, the Lantern cast, uh, The Emerald Twilight Story in uh, Green Lantern number 48, 49, and 50. Because uh, I didn't know much about Green Lantern, but I remembered him from the Super Friends. And I thought, hey, here's a story with big changes for him. I better jump onto that. And it's a good thing I did because uh, that story had major, major implications for Zero Hour, as we will see. And then, uh, as the hype started to build up for the Zero Hour crossover in the spring of 94, I was, I was majorly psyched for this event because it was billed as a perfect jumping-on point for new readers to DC Comics. And it was going to involve all kinds of DC history, all kinds of weird, funky DC characters, past, present, and future. And I was getting all psyched for it. And uh, for, like, months in advance, here I am, this 15-year-old kid, just barely old enough to hold down a job. And I was putting in lots of extra hours at my parents' shop and saving my shekel studiously so I could have enough money for the, the miniseries and all tie-ins. And so I, I was just totally gone on zero hour. I was zeroed out, man. And when it came, you know, it was indeed, as Chad said, a fun story, a little bit confusing. Um, to this day, I mean, having reread it recently, I, I'm struck by its uh, incoherence at points. But, um, yes, I enjoyed it quite a bit at the time. My only, uh, the only flaw I found in it was that uh, not quite enough was changed by it. I, I was expecting, you know, more radical departures from like, the DC status quo that it actually gave us. Um, and, as, and actually, it was as a part of the uh, hype for Zero Hour that I first learned about uh, the story that has become, since then, my favorite comic story of all time. My um, stock and trade, as it were, as a comics fan, Crisis on Infinite Earths. So there you go, Chad. I, I would not have learned about Crisis, um, if not for reading all the, uh, like the articles in Wizard, for example, about Zero Hour and uh, uh, the legacy that it uh, was picking up from the original Crisis story. Awesome. Yeah, I... I can't pinpoint exactly when I had my first brush with Zero Hour, but um, it had to, it couldn't have been more than like a year or two after it had already come out. This was a time when um, my comics buying was pretty much limited to, you know, I was buying Green Lantern, I was buying Robin, and I would thumb through the back issue bins for like 10 minutes and pick out a cover that jumped out at me. And what jumped out at me on one particular day was Zero Hour number zero. This was like, it was like the all white cover with nothing on it but the the title graphic which was like silver embossed and it just jumped out at you and it's just like zero hour crisis in time and there's nothing else there and I'm like well what is this and I had no idea at the time I'd never heard of zero hour before so I'm, I figured you know what I don't want to get a whole mini series if I don't know what anything about it I'll get this one because it's number zero that's obviously <laughs> the beginning of the story <laughs> took it home read it I was so confused. (laughs) And and for anybody at home who hasn't read Zero Hour before, they they really like played up and ran with the concept of um, counting down to Zero Hour, where like the first issue was number four, the second issue was number three, and ending on zero. So I was I was reading the tail end of this thing. I I recognized like five people in the entire thing. I couldn't, like, I was convinced for the longest time, like, there was a misprint on the cover, because this could not be, like, issue zero of this story. And, like, I just, I, I, I oddly liked it at the time, but I never really wanted to go back and try reading the rest of it. <laughs> and, like, I became, like, a, like, I read stuff around it, like, a handful of tie-ins, which we'll get to eventually, but, um, 
Uh, yeah, I just I just learned about Zero Hour kind of superficially through other books that I was already reading, and and actually, I, I read the entire thing for the first time about a week ago, <laughs> preparing for this episode. You're such a procrastinator. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so how do we want to dive into this? Well, I guess I guess since we have Murd on, we're gonna have to ask. Because you're the the crisis buff, I I wanted to ask you to be sure, why Zero Hour? If Crisis was supposed to reset everything, why did we need to reset even more? Oh, okay, okay. So it's not why did they call it Zero Hour, it's why did the event happen, period. Yeah. Okay, yes. Um, Well, Crisis on Infinite Earths itself was uh, not a perfectly uh, realized vision for the... uh, the editors and creators involved. Um, they had tried to, to to rebuild the DC universe in certain key areas. They had tried to you know, make, make things a little linear and more clear to the understanding for new readers. Um, but uh, the methods they used to bring this about were not perfect. And, uh, uh, well, certain uh, cracks appeared in the edifice that they created in the DC universe uh, after Crisis. They, they discovered that they hadn't done quite as good a job as they thought of making things clear to the understanding. Uh, certain miscommunications occurred, certain continuity glitches developed, uh, some, certain of the measures that they had taken to try and uh, make things simpler and easier for new readers to understand actually made them harder to understand. Um, and so they, they decided on, uh, in 1994, which is uh, technically sort of the 10th anniversary of uh, the release of Crisis on Infinite Earths, like the first issue came out the very last week of December in 1984, so they were kind of stretching it, calling this a 10th anniversary affair of the original Crisis. But uh, one of the things that they set out to do with this zero-hour event was to try and uh, uh, just uh, do a little bit of house cleaning, a little bit of uh, spot repair work on uh, the continuity problems that Crisis on Infinite Earths had created while trying to solve other continuity problems. Um, so some of the major areas were like Hawkman's convoluted history, and you can't really pin that one on Crisis itself. That was a problem that developed later on. Um, and the Legion of Superheroes history, too. That uh, you know, the, the revisions made to Superman's past ended up... Uh, having a sort of a domino effect on the continuity of the Legion of Superheroes, and so that that was the part of the, the DC Universe that was most profoundly affected by Zero Hour, because you know, they basically decided that thanks to the repercussions of Crisis and the stories that had happened since Crisis, uh, they needed to just reboot and start over from square one with the Legion of Superheroes. So, um, and that's uh, one of the things that they did there. So yes, that that is why Zero Hour took place, because Crisis, uh, uh, the, the intent was not quite achieved and uh, well, all the things just were not uh, perfect in the wake of it, and so Zero Hour was their attempt at uh, uh, performing a little bit of uh, routine maintenance on the DC Universe, as it were. And as we'll see, uh, Zero Hour didn't really do a much better job of uh, fixing those problems than Crisis did uh, fixing, quote-unquote, the problems it had been designed to fix. Yeah, it was strange reading this. Like, I'm not sure what I expected, since I already read the ending a while ago, but... But Zero Hour, it felt small, almost. Like, mm. like it's, it's as, as you're going through, you can almost, like, check off the list of things it did. Like, it streamlined Hawkman. It, um, it gave the Legion a fresh start. It, like, kind of officially ended the JSA, quote-unquote, for a little while. But, as, like, as a story, it's, it felt like 
it, it was it was odd. It was odd mm. to me because it it was this very like like high concept. Now I don't want to say metatextual because that's not the right word, but it was this very high concept, big idea kind of story that at the end of the day had a very small number of goals and achievements attached to it, or it it didn't even seem like it was trying to do all that much. So it's like, I mean, I mean, if the point was to have like the um. Uh, to do for ultimate alternate timelines, what Crisis did for alternate realities, like I don't know, I, I le- it left me kind of scratching my head, my head, thinking, okay, were alternate timelines really that big of a point of confusion for DC fans? Or I think you guys are are kind of missing one of the other big aspects of Zero Hour. Uh, this this came like a matter of months after they had introduce Kyle Rayner. I think it was, uh, what, four issues, you know, past the Emerald Twilight storyline? Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, Green Lantern 55 was the zero-hour tie-in, and that was, you know, five months after the end of Emerald Twilight and four months after Kyle first came on the scene, so, yeah. Right. So you had, you know, before that, you had the the major revamp with Superman. You had the major revamp with Batman with the, you know, the back-breaking. Uh, then they took on Green Lantern. I think they did something to Wonder Woman at the, at the time. Oh yeah, that she was uh, replaced by the, the Artemis, yes, another Amazon warrior. And she started wearing the blue costume. Uh, yeah, yeah, she wasn't calling herself Wonder Woman anymore, but yeah, she had the. Yeah. Right. Uh, so after Zero Hour, like they put out, I don't even remember how many it is, like twenty or so zero issues for a whole bunch of series. Basically, this is DC's way of saying, hey, you know, we revamped these these other characters, and, you know, you bought that really heavily, so now we're going to do it to everything else we have across the board. We're going to put out a zero issue. It's going to be able to, you know, let you start fresh, like uh, Fate. Um, what was the, the Triumph? You, you had, like, a few characters that were brand new out of Zero Hour, and, like, you know, you gave everybody else this Zero issue to kind of try and, you know, jumpstart their popularity like they had done with their, their you know, big big hitters. Or, right. or not. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I don't have any point to argue with. <laughs> Everyone hates your idea. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone respects your idea, Jim, because it, it's it's correct. I mean, that, that's another one of the major uh, aims of Zero Hour was to give people a, like a ground floor point of entry you know, for new readers. And uh, that's one way, I think, in which uh, Zero Hour actually did surpass its predecessor, Crisis on Infinite Earths, because after Crisis, there was very little coordinated effort made to uh, give people an easy way to start reading DC Comics in the wake of the changes that they put together. Uh, but uh, zero hour, zero hour. They had this whole big uh, branded and heavily promoted zero month that gave every single title the opportunity to uh, open the door for new readers to just uh, explain the origins of the characters or explain what changes, if any, the character had recently gone through thanks to zero hour, and and just uh, clear the way for new readers to come on in. Whereas with Crisis, uh, the writers pretty much just uh, went along their merry way after the event was over. And um, oftentimes didn't even communicate with one another as to uh, 
know how the things they were doing in the wake of crisis would uh, interfere with the things other writers were doing in the wake of crisis. And so yeah, Zero Hour did at least in one respect, you know, the one that you were just describing, Jim, uh, surpass its predecessor. But uh, that, <laughs> that may be just about the only way in which it did. And actually, there were 40 zero issues. Wow. So. All right. Now wait. So, um, oh God. Just just to just to uh, ask Adam, you said you wanted to pick up all the tie-ins. That's right. Does that mean that you bought all the zero issues? I did do that thing. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I still own every single one of them. Have you, you didn't sell them to pay for college or? Uh, I did not find that necessary, no. <laughs> nope, still got them all, all the tie-ins, all the zero-month things, and, of course, the five-issue mini itself. Have you read all the zero issues? <laughs> well, I haven't gone back to them for about 15 years, but, yeah, at the time, I did read all of them. He hadn't built up a big enough backlog yet, so he's he's gotten to them by now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my back. Uh, I think my backlog at that time was only about 20 comics, but uh, now... <laughs> It's into the four digits, let's just say that. Um, <laughs> good old ten-year pile. All right, so should we start working our way through this? Yes. Issue by issue? <laughs> Starting with number four, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. actually, do we want to touch on the showcases? Oh, the uh, the, the Sum yeah, the... Zero, is that what that's from? Uh, it's the, the prelude to Zero Hour. Yeah, yeah, rip? you're right, Sum Zero. Okay, because I'm reading, I'm reading this out... Of, in trade, and none of the covers are here, so I'd, I'm just kind of guessing where issues begin and end. <laughs> okay, so these would be uh, like Showcase 94, numbers 8 and 9, I think? Correct. Yes. Jim, do you want to... This is basically a Wave Rider story, and he's your best friend, so you want to you wanna tell us all about this? Well, simply put, I mean, this is kind of kind of spinning out of Armageddon 2001, uh, Wave Rider had made some appearances since since then, but uh, you know, basically, you have Monarch, the the villain from Armageddon 2001, uh, Hank Hall. He was uh, you know big on time travel, and you know that made him a perfect enemy for Wave Rider. So they they bring him back here, and they're just kind of you know showing how he escapes from captivity. Uh, the linear men, along with Wave Rider, are going after him, and uh, I don't really remember something about extant. I think yeah, he becomes was... extant. Yeah. Yeah. In the in the process of fighting Wave Rider, he I guess uh, hops a little bit of Wave Rider's power, has this uh, moment of inspiration, and realizes that he just if he accesses the power of Dove and Hawk in himself at the same time. Uh, he can actually make himself smarter and accomplish a lot more than he ever could before. That's when he discovers, uh, that, you know, he, he had, finds this newfound power and ambition and decides to start. Uh, and he also steals Wave Rider's Linear Man time armband. And that is how he starts, uh, he conceives the idea to start messing around with time. That is how, how Mark, you know, the villain from Armageddon 2001, becomes extant. You know, as much as I love the character Monarch, the character extant, like, I just, it, it's no interest in that. Is it the costume, do you think? No, I, I actually, I like the costume. It's just that the whole merging the powers of Hawk and Dove, um, and then, you know, later on, what he does, which I won't, you know, ruin yet. 
<laughs> and then like he pops up in JSA later. It's just I don't know everything about this this version of the character. It just like it took a character that I really thought was cool and interesting and just you know slid right down a path to you know not caring. Was that because you don't like Hawk and Dove to begin with, for the most part? No, no. It's oh oh I know what it is. Ah uh, yes. Okay. It, it's 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 because of what happens later. That is that is why. Um, I guess oh, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll expound upon that later. Now that we've just set right. it all up. <laughs> yeah, that's great. We're going to forget to even mention it. Great, great job. Yeah. Great podcast right here. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so I'm just going to jump right into issue one. Uh, not one, four. <laughs> issue four of Zero, Zero Hour starts off with uh, the Time Trapper, a like long-time Legion of Superheroes villain getting blown away by this mysterious figure off-panel who, at this point, we assume is most likely extant because we just saw him get powered up in the prologue. And then we, we even see the silhouette of his, the figure. Is, he's, he's wearing a cape, flowing cape-like extant, and he's standing beneath this gigantic ball of entro- entropy, entropy, I'm going to call it both throughout this. <laughs> <laughs> and he's proclaiming that the countdown has begun, the countdown to zero hour. It's, this is all. This is all taking place at the end of time, where nothing but destruction and this, this creepy dude in a robe live. Um, meanwhile, throughout the DC universe, it's, everybody's starting to get the feeling that something's going wrong. You know, Metron is thoroughly freaked out. He goes to Darkseid to try and, I don't know, get get help from him, but Darkseid just kind of blows him off, and then we never see him again. <laughs> um, um, in Gotham City, a a fully walkable Barbara Gordon is swinging around as Batgirl <laughs> and, and, and uh, busting the Joker and, and Batman and Robin show up Robin, Tim, Drake, which is important they're, they're like, what what the hell, what? you should be in a wheelchair What? Well, how is this, what's going on? And, and Barbara doesn't know what they're talking about as far as she's concerned, she's always been able to walk you know, flash to, to Vanishing Point, a place outside of time where the Linear Men and Wave Rider just, they hang out monitoring the time stream, and all of their sensors start freaking out and going blank. And they don't know what's up, but they 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 track the disturbance to the what is it sixty fourth century, where the Flash Wally West is fighting, you know, longtime rogue Abracadabra. When this this again this giant ball of entropy shows up, and and you know after some convincing Wally believes that yeah no this isn't one of Abracadabra's tricks this is really going to to crisis the hell out of the 64th century so they come up with some some uh, nice pseudoscience-y way to combat this this cosmic event and it ultimately leads to a staple of the crisis line which is the the uh, unfortunate sacrifice of a flash <laughs> which Unfortunately, results in nobody being saved at all. As a you know, Wave Rider and and uh, Rip Hunter grab ba- uh, Barry, <laughs> grab Wally's costume and just like head off to to warn others and try try again to just stop this thing from going any further and his sacrifice from not being in vain. But you know, they really can't do anything about it because they they jump to the the year five thousand A.D. Wait, 5700 AD. I can't read. I can't read or write. I'm sorry. 
where they see, oddly enough, a young Hal Jordan still as a Green Lantern trying to do the same thing the Flash just did and and having exactly as much success as he dies prematurely as, as you know, in the, uh, Wave Rider. I'm sorry, I thought things happened in this issue that happened in the next issue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> Wave Rider realizes, okay, this isn't, this. I have to get out of here. I have to regroup, figure out what's going on. Uh, Rip Hunter just says something about Crisis before he got taken. I'm going to go look that up. You know, you cut back to Earth again, and we're seeing more anomalies pop up. Um, you know, Hawkman is playing Vandal Savage when he blinks into eight or ten different alternate versions of himself. Um, Metron recruits Superman, who recruits Kyle Rayner to start rallying your uh, your kind of standard issue complement of superheroes to combat whatever's going on, even though they have no idea what's going on yet. And the Spectre, being the helpful guy he is, just says, no, get out of my house. Um, it's at this point, Wave Rider goes back to Vanishing Point, learns the secrets of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which, again, I forgot at this point in DC history, no one knew about. Um, he's thoroughly freaked out, and and uh, he, he pops back to Earth. He finds the JSA. Uh, he gives... He gives Jay the bad news about Wally, and you know that team resolves to you know we're not going to wait. We're not going to go to New York where Superman's gathering everyone. We are going to just meet this head on, gather some intel, and just we're going we're going to stop this. We're going to deal with this. And as Doctor Fate magics them all away, Wave Rider and the Hawks are left behind, and I think that's where the issue ends. <laughs> You know what's interesting? Like one of the one of the key elements to this whole series, uh, rallying all of the heroes, um, involves Superman talking to Kyle Rayner, and like the reason that they know each other is because like two months prior they met up in the Green Lantern book. Yeah, that was good timing. <laughs> yeah, you know something I really loved about this issue was the very first panel, where like it just it kind of sets the stage, sets the tone really early for the kind of weird thing you're about to read. The the caption that usually tells you, like, the time this takes place in, it says, this is what it says, it says, Earth's distant future, 32 hours ago, the end of time. It's like, what? All of those yep. together at the same time? <laughs> yes, uh, that, that, that is uh, one of the unfortunate uh, hallmarks of this series. You know, whether you're in the, the distant past, uh, you know, Three hours ago, and then sometimes the story uh, takes place in uh, regions that are outside of the time stream, and yet it's still telling you it's 14 hours ago Earth time. You know whatever that means. Yeah. Uh, you know time being relative and all that. Yeah, and they're constantly jumping back and forth from present, past, and future, and every number. Every time there's a scene change, it comes with an accompanying update box of how much time has passed and in which direction. Like after a while, it's like wow, wow. <laughs> so I guess I guess the whole thing—it's all happening in different time streams, but they're all happening in chronological order. That's that's one of the things that threw me off when I first read this whole thing. Sometimes it's in reverse chronological order. <laughs> 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 um, I, something I thought that kind of stood out to me was how this—and I guess it's more in the prologue, the sh the um, showcase issues than in the main series—is how you know I'm. I'm used to DC and Marvel both kind of trying to keep their stories and characters timeless so that you know they don't age them out or anything. 
Zero Hour seems to really want to establish where in in uh, DC's publishing history it is. Because the, um, the two-part Wave Rider thing leading up to this, where we got the Birth of Extent, they... Like I lost count of how many times they said, "Oh, this is how this is in 1994. We're gonna go in 1994 now. This is 94, right?" Just over and over again. And um, I don't remember if it was in this first issue, but certainly throughout it, there's all these references to, you know, how how long ago Crisis on Infinite Earths were or was. Um, there's references to the Killing Joke, to Nightfall, to Rain of the Superman, and I don't know. Maybe it's because it's a story about time that they felt like that was appropriate. I, just, I was almost surprised to see like so much of it throughout this thing. Uh, one of the things that I had never, never looked at um, until, you know, just rereading it recently, because like, you know, I guess certain things you obviously wouldn't pick up on until, you know, you have that reveal, you know, at the end, which I mean, I, at this point, I think everybody knows, and I think Chad spoiled it. Parallax. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what, what I started noticing was that there are, there's like quite a few clues that they place, you know, in these issues leading up to, you know, the, the big reveal, where it's not like you could actually figure it out, but like when you look back, it's like, oh. And like right off the bat, like when the mysterious off-screen character is talking, you know, to the uh, the time trapper, you know, he's commenting about the omnipotent types, you know, that just babble about their power and authority. As in the little, bald, blue-skinned omnipotent types? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And and then at the, right after that, you know, he, he's, you know, referencing entropy, which, you know, as all Green Lanterns know, entropy is what Krona, you know, he basically touched connecting the end of the uh, time to the beginning of time. And then within the first few pages, you have Paul Manning, uh, Green Lantern's alternate identity in the 58th century. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to mention that too, because that's, that's like way back from, uh, what was it? It was an issue in the sixties. It was like number seven or eight or something. Yeah. Issue eight. It was number eight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they like, they abducted Hal Jordan from from the past because they needed a a champion and they just kind of imprinted this other personality on him and he had like this double life going in the future off and on for a few years <laughs> as happens you know even had a wife in the 58th century <laughs> that that actually fits with Hal I think yeah <laughs> yeah woman in every port yep <laughs> woman in every time <laughs> uh. And then uh, later on, uh, one of the issues that I see so often at, like, uh, you know, in 50-cent bins or dollar bins or whatever, is the issue of Green Lantern much later in the series with uh, Salak on the cover, kissing a woman. Salak and Alas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, like, doesn't sh- they, the, they, put, they imprint the same uh, personality onto him, right? And then Chip has to snap him out of it. Right. And they have to brainwash the wife, too, so that she perceives him as a human being and not a pink uh, lizard creature. <laughs> future people are jerks. <laughs> uh, Jim, why don't you take number two? Uh, or, um, number actually, three? <laughs> yeah. Before we move on, there's one more big uh, Green Lantern-related hint I, I wanted to mention. 
Okay. And it's actually, it's, it's the biggest hint of all, actually. It, it's the title itself. Um, uh, now, now, as you may know, Crisis on Infinite Earths, its title was a callback to classic Silver Age stories, uh, teaming up the Justice League and Justice Society uh, in the parallel Earth uh, crossover stories. Uh, those were always, they always had the word crisis in their title in some way, you know, Crisis on Earth 2, Crisis on Earth S, and so on. So when they decided to do this big um, crossover, as an homage to that, they called it Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, they did sort of the same thing with the Zero Hour thing. It is a callback, actually, to a small handful of Silver Age stories starring, guess what, Green Lantern. Uh, the Zero Hour in those uh, stories was a reference to the amount of time he had left before his uh, power ring lost its charge. Um, they, they only did like three of them. There was like Zero Hour in the Silent City, Zero Hour in the Rocket City, and so on. So uh, if you were a fan in 1994 who had a really deep knowledge of Silver Age Green Lantern, you might be able to figure out like who the big bad behind all this goings-on would, would, would turn out to be. Now, in 1994, I had no such knowledge, so I did not see you know, the, the ultimate uh, reveal coming. But uh, still, the clue was there. Now, let me ask you, Adam, because you bring up a point that um, was DC successful in keeping it a secret that Hal Jordan was going to be the ultimate bad guy behind this story? Because, um, like as we mentioned, Monarch <laughs> plays at least some role in here, and, and uh, the entire reason Hank Hall became Monarch is because somebody let slip that, oh, it was going to be Captain Adam, and they had to kind of <laughs> scramble last minute. That's right. Um, as far as I know, I mean, uh, they, they they did a good job of planting a couple of red herrings, or you know, green herrings, if you prefer, in the, well, in the, in the person of Extant himself, you know, Hank Hall. He gets to be the one who helps to protect the identity of the true Big Bad, because everyone just assumes at this point in the story he's acting alone. Uh, and also the fact that they had, you know, uh, young Hal Jordan do a little cameo and apparently meet a terrible death uh, in the 58th century, you know, that, that, that might uh, throw people off the scent of uh, Hal Jordan as the big bad guy, too. Um, but they, DC did uh, drop a major teaser hint. Um, somewhere, I, I think this was published sometime in the middle of uh, all this zero-hour happening, sometime in the month of... Uh, well, the, the whole thing happened in the course of a single month. It was a weekly publishing schedule, the Zero Hour miniseries. Uh, the cover dated September 94. Somewhere in the middle of that, they published a black and white ash can, uh, teasing what was going to be happening in Zero Hour number zero. And you could see that there was a, a mysterious bad guy who was not extant. And uh, he was displayed it, all blacked out in silhouette. And uh, when other characters made reference to him by name, they put little you know, black boxes over his name. And uh, so I, I got the feeling that uh, at, when that was released, that caused some people to tumble to the answer. But uh, I, I think it, that as of issue number four, I don't think anybody had a clue yet. Okay. Number three, then? Yes. Okay. The, <laughs> if that's the second The one. second <laughs> issue in the series, number three. Now, uh, Jay Garrick has found out that Wally has died in this crisis, and... Uh, you know, there's a big powwow amongst the JSA about, you know, how it's like, you know, we can't, we're the ones that keep living and the young ones keep dying, blah, 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 blah. That's when they're like, you know, okay, we need to, you know, find this menace and take him out. And so I guess Dr. Fate is the one that transports them to uh, Vanishing Point. 
but Wave Rider and Hawk Man and Hawk Girl, uh, they're left behind for some reason. Then uh, Metron and Superman are they're coming from the Midwest, which means that this is after the Superman tie-in. Like a lot of this one and I guess future issues now are happening both before and after tie-ins. So every once in a while you'll see references to that. They come across Impulse. They plan on giving him a hand, but Impulse doesn't really need a hand. But they recruit him anyway. Uh, you have the Time Trapper, who's actually still alive right now. And I wasn't really too too up on what happened there, because I don't, uh, I don't follow the, the Legion stuff. So I, I'm just assuming that you know somebody from the Legion found out that he's going to be this Time Trapper character. Uh, Power Girl is giving birth to a mystical magic baby. Um, <laughs> I love that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> more on that later. All the heroes are converging in, I believe it's New York. All the JSA arrives on Vanishing Point, where they have to go up against Extant. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hawkman and Hawkgirl are and Wave Rider are joined by tons and tons of other Hawk variations. And then there's a Hawk god, and somehow all the Hawks merge into some sort of new god-Hawk thing. Um, <laughs> which makes about as much sense as what I just explained to you. <laughs> I was going to say that that's about as clear as this situation can be made. <laughs> yeah. Uh, meanwhile, in the future, uh, Viral Docs... Oh, wait, no, he's he's present day. Yeah, Legion. Right, right. <laughs> the Viral Docs uh, launches a, a time probe to discover what's going on with this, this time crisis. And uh, then we get a, a look at New Genesis. They're talking about the the horror that's, you know, happening and, and coming. Um, just, just to kind of emphasize the fact that everybody's taking notice of this crisis that's coming. Uh, all the heroes are talking about all these these crazy random things that are happening. Hawkman, this, this new crazy hawk person, comes on the scene, and everybody's happy that he's there. Um, I don't think anybody really understands what's going on. It's a lot of, a lot of confusion, a lot of people saying that they everybody wants to help and weird things happening. Uh, seriously, folks, it makes about as much sense as what I'm saying. Um, Jim's never read this issue before. <laughs> oh, I've, yeah, I've read it a couple of times. It just, it's just, you know, everybody's... Yeah, hard to summarize. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, out in Vanishing Point, uh, the JSA, or they finally go up against Extant, and he takes them apart one by one. Uh, some of you know, some of them dying completely. Some of them being, you know, brought into old age. Apparently, they were being kept young by magical spells. I, I didn't realize that. I just thought that they were like stuck in limbo or something like that. But well, they uh, had been. But uh, something happened to them before that that helped to keep them young. It's, it's, it's an all-star squadron thing. It's a Roy Thomas story from the eighties. Wow, that's lucky for them. Lucky for them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, let's see who dies. Um, Sandman, I think Sandman finally dies, right? Not yet. Now, no. Sandman and Wildcat just suffer 
heart attacks, basically, and that our man, the well, the Atom is the first one to die. He just gets fried outright by a chronal energy blast. Right. And then our man also is, is he's aged to death on the spot, and uh, Dr. Midnight is also badly injured, but he doesn't actually die until later. So, so those are the three most severe casualties, the three JSAs who actually die. <laughs> okay. I think... I think, isn't Dr. Fate presumed dead, but he's not really dead or something like that? Well, no, he's been, he's, uh, well, he, he's formed by Kent and Inza Nelson merging into one being. And uh, so a chronal blast from Extant ages them both so that they, they can't physically uh, stand the merger anymore. So they're blasted apart, basically, and, and uh, so Dr. Fate cannot exist. Uh, so, yeah, they, they explain that later um, in a future issue. And uh, one of the, of the cool features is the, the time blast that wears out the charge in Alan Scott's ring. And then we get the reveal that Extant is Wave Rider. <laughs> is this the thing that you, uh, no. you really hate about it? Really? No, 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 not yet, not yet. Oh, wow. <laughs> We're getting there, though. <laughs> now, my question is, because I remember reading JSA and... Uh, our man, he's not dead in that. Like, he's stuck in, like, a room that the Our Man robot put him in by snatching him before he died. Uh, yes, basically. And uh, eventually the Our Man robot uh, took his place in death altogether so that uh, Rex Tyler, Our Man, the original Our Man, was able to, uh, well, walk the earth again and uh, live some more of his life. But you know, all that's you know, retconned in a long way down the road. As of now, for all intents and purposes, our man is dead. Yeah, the death of the JSA, like, that's one of the big, one of the big things they they really seem to want to definitively do with this series is to just usher out the JSA. Because until the series that would start just soon, not too long after this, actually, DC just didn't really seem to know what to do with these characters. If they kept them in limbo for years, they like when they would have them back, they would constantly be talking about like, oh, it's, this is, isn't as easy as it used to be when we were young. And so I was, it's just surprising they would just kind of slaughter half the team. Yeah, they were just very uh, determined to demonstrate that they are, you know. Aim towards the future, show what a hip 90s kind of company they were. And the JSA ends up being the scapegoat, it seems, every time DC wants to demonstrate that. I mean, it was kind of the same thing in the 80s. You know, as you said, Danny, they, they banished uh, the JSA to limbo at, after a crisis on Infinite Earths um, because they, that, that was sort of a symbolic gesture to show how dedicated they were to progressivism, to moving forward. They wanted to put their past behind them and move into the 80s. And but and so they, they at least gave the JSA a decent, noble, heroic retirement. You know, let them go off to Valhalla and fight Norse gods forever. And then, now this is what really blows my mind about this whole thing in Zero Hour, though. They brought the JSA back from Limbo in 1992 in uh, Armageddon Inferno, which was a sequel to Armageddon 2001, so Wave Rider was involved there, too. Uh, so they brought the JSA back as part of that crossover, and this was, like, in 1992, two years before the Zero Hour thing happened, a mere two years. They gave them a miniseries, they gave them an ongoing series, which you know, tanked after a relatively short run, and now, just a mere two years after their big comeback, the JSA are being you know, not only retired, but uh, you know, partially killed off, you know, uh, forcibly transformed into the old men 
that I guess DC thinks uh, the current generation of young readers believe them to be. So you know, they're kind of the sacrificial lambs for DC's efforts to uh, appeal to the generation of young, image-happy readers who uh, were just trying to dabble in comics in the early 90s boom days. Uh, so it's just kind of a shame that the JSA seems to have to pay that price repeatedly in the 80s and 90s. What's bizarre is how the ongoing series that would come after this, the the James Robinson, Goyer, eventually John's era, would like like everything that they seem to to treat as a detriment to the JSA up to that point becomes kind of the linchpin of what made it one of DC's best and best selling and best critically received books. Right. It was a celebration of DC history and legacy rather than a refutation of it. Chad, you've been quiet for a while. <laughs> I'm quiet because this, like I said, this this whole series was uh, was confusing to me when I first read it, and I'm, I'm rereading it again and again. It's no less confusing, and it almost feels um, rushed. Like it, it, it's you know big event after big event happening with every page turn. Or if if it's not a big event per storyline, it's you get the feeling like they want you to think it's a big event, you know, like they play up the art style or the the dramatic uh, the dramatic lingo or or something like that. It's just it's part of the reason I'm dreading it when it comes to my turn to do a synopsis because I already suck <laughs> at synopsis to begin with. So so synops doing a synopsis is something that I uh, <laughs> that I don't fully understand is is terrifying but <laughs> please did you hear mine i'm i'm amazed adam didn't hang up on us <laughs> it's I'm, I'm quiet because i'm trying to comprehend everything that's going on like the whole uh power girl being pregnant thing i don't i don't know where the hell that happened i mean when i when i first read this this was one of my first experiences with power girl to begin with let alone you know i've always been curious why is she pregnant what's going on but never curious enough to go back and back issue dive to figure out what's happening. Yeah, I think that's a carryover from Justice League International, if you ever you know, do care. <laughs> I can't tell you the exact issue, but yeah, you're right. That's the sort of thing that uh, the editors really should have made more of an effort to explain. I mean, they're not doing the uh, little footnote caption things uh, in this miniseries, but at the, the, the final page of each issue, there is kind of a crossover guide telling you in which of the various tie-ins you can find explanations for certain things that happen. You, you think they could have thrown in something to explain you know, how and why Power Girl is pregnant. That's, that's, that, that's one against them. They should have done something to explain that. Not, not to mention that splash page of everyone showing up, and I'm, I'm, you know, I was thinking, hey, it's a cool splash page, and then you just see some pregnant woman in the background, and I'm, <laughs> I, was, I was really confused when I first read that. <laughs> Because when I first saw her, like I guess I was kind of breezing through the the trade when I first read it. I didn't really comprehend. I didn't really register that she was pregnant and what was going on. And then I started looking even more, and I was like, "Oh wait, <laughs> this is odd." <laughs> yeah, that splash page did in, for a couple of reasons makes me laugh every time I look at it. But mainly because I look at it and I see all these stupid '90s characters that are really in no way relevant anymore. Just a reminder of how much a product of its time Zero Hour really is. I think I can't remember his name, but I think I see like that one guy from Bloodlines down there next to Batman. Oh my God, that's Gunfire. Uh, of course, that's his name. Uh, well, uh, Anima. I think uh, 
Anima is, is also in this storyline a couple of places. Yep, yeah, she is. Uh, just look for a chick in a helmet. That's probably her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, yeah. Chad, I have... Oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. I was just going to say that uh, if you ask Jeff John, gunfire is pretty much shorthand for 90s lameness. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, Chad, I absolutely agree with you. Like, it's, it's, it's very, like... It's almost frantic how this thing is paced. And, like, whether some whether things are happening or not. Like, like the the streamlining of the Hawks. Like, I knew it happened in this series, but I never saw it until I read it this for the episode. And I expected that to be a bigger deal than it was. Like, it was it was almost a footnote that just randomly happened in the second issue. It's like I was like, well, really? Wow. I, I expected that to be like a bigger deal. Or I thought like Hal Jordan or Extent would like physically do it themselves kind of thing. But it just sort of happened off to the side and barely got mentioned again. This, I mean, this is why I, I, I find it so confusing because when I got into it, for instance, I read Kingdom Come before I ever read this. And when I turned the page and saw this hawk entity thing, I was like, oh, so that's where it comes from. And that's what I just assumed when I was reading it. And, you know, since Adam's here, I mean, when I was listening to the, the spotlight on Hawkman, or the Hawks uh, episode... If I'm not mistaken, didn't this whole story completely screw up the, the they were they were trying to fix Hawks the Hawks continuity and screwed it up a little bit even more by trying to fix it. Yes, that's, uh, that, that, I, I would definitely agree with that appraisal. Um, yeah, it's, it, there are some things they could have done, some steps they could have taken here to straighten out, you know, uh, what Hawk was active when you know, in the Hawk timeline, but. I don't know how they thought that squishing all the hawks into one gestalt character was going to you know, make things any less confusing. Eventually, the, the things got so bad that they just kind of banished Hawkman to limbo entirely, and the character was, as they say, radioactive for you know, a good five or so years after that. Okay. Who, who wants to take the third issue? Uh, I'll do it. <laughs> fall, Be- fall on your sword, Chad. Fall on your sword. <laughs> I might as well get it over with now. But it's gonna it's gonna sound like I'm reading this for the first time, even though I promise you I'm not. <laughs> um, okay, um, if I'm not because mis- I got the trade in front of me, so there's no like clear breaking point. But oh, thank uh, God I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this part of the story, this is issue two, uh, starts off at vanishing point, where uh, extant wave rider and and real wave rider are talking to each other. And uh, he's telling him that he's, you know, sucked some power away from him. He's, and Wave Rider is the, the real reason all this is going down. The, uh, a fight ensues, um, and Alan's trying to hold Wave Rider back because he's warning him if he could take power out of his ring, then he could, you know, suck Wave Rider down to bits. They fight, uh, and Extent sends them all, I don't know, does he obliterate them or send them back, um, and he marches into some hidden room somewhere, and he's talking to his quote-unquote agents of destruction and telling him the war has begun. Uh, we flash over to New York City, and Metron, Superman, Green Lantern, uh, a few others, are uh, talking right as a, a lightning storm, uh, and I'm assuming entropy wave goes off. Uh, Metron uh, says that his tr- chair is able to go through both time and space, so he opens a boom tube, and by combining some energies of some of the heroes and channeling it through 
uh, Captain Adam, I believe, they send the, the, I guess, futuristic city that was hovering above New York City or whatever back, um, back through the, through the time stream. Through, through this, you see that the, the GS, the JSA is all back in their aged forms and everyone's rushing to help. Um, and they explain what happens and why. Our man are, uh, is, is, uh, basically he's given up, he's quitting. And, uh, there's a, there's a real sense of, uh, loss there as far as, you know, you know, we're done for, this is, this is too much for us to handle. In in all of this, you know, Jay Garrick rips the lightning bolt off of his chest and both Alan and, and Jay walk off together. And, um, like I said, this whole scene is pretty much a, uh, doom and gloom moment. There's a little kind of homage to the uh, homage to the to the JSA. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of characters I don't recognize now, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, big big battle goes off in, on in on New Earth in the 30th century. Uh, people are uh, the, his uh, extensile army is fighting against them, shooting Captain Adam in the chest. It's almost uh, whatever. <laughs> Crap! <laughs> in all of this, uh, <laughs> Power Girl goes into labor, quote unquote, and there's a uh, there's a, a protective aura around her, and uh, we flash right back to Vanishing Point next Extent, and he's uh, sucking up energies, he's he's marshalling his powers, and uh, then we flash right back to Earth's distant past, which is for those of you keeping count, ten hours and six minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they're all trying they're all facing an entropy wave and, as well as continuing their fight against uh, Extant's forces uh, then Kid Flash or sorry Impulse as he likes to be called shows up and starts going up against uh, Extant and his forces Extant makes a shot for uh, Darkstar and Green Lantern Kyle Rayner dives in the way and uh, then Extant takes out um, Wave Rider with a blast. It doesn't kill him, but he... he, he uh... Okay, well then, yeah, he kills him. <laughs> <laughs> Sucks up his power. For some reason, though, he takes off his mask and he doesn't look like Wave Rider anymore. But then he sucks up uh, Wave Rider's power and, and his essence and he looks like Wave Rider again. Through all this, he picks up Alan Scott's ring for whatever reason. No. What? Now, um, well, first off, uh, when he takes off his mask and it's not him, that's when he's Hank Hall. He hasn't become Wave Rider yet. This is a, a previous incarnation of Extant. So when he became Wave Rider, he was becoming that future version that we've already seen earlier in the series. Yeah, this this was him before the last time we saw him. Yes, and when he zaps out of there. It's somebody else picking up the Green Lantern ring. Oh, see, this is why I hate this. I don't hate it, <laughs> but but uh, okay. The the entropy wave is still approaching. Superman grabs Metron's chair, hurls it into the wave, and basically turns the whole thing inside out. Which is, I guess, a solution in this time, but only a stopgap as far as the whole the whole uh, problem zero hour is is going. Warrior slash Guy Gardner starts freaking out, um, starts forming a gun out of his hand, 
Uh, I'm assuming this is the first part we ever see of his uh, Voldarian powers taking shape. Uh, Extant is making his final plans, and everyone's kind of marshalling up for the for the next for the next issue. And you know what? That's 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 the best I can do right now. <laughs> Holy crap! <laughs> nah, you did you did fine. You did fine. Uh, I, I'm telling you, every time I read this story, I discover something new. <laughs> yeah. That can be a good thing. Even when doing the recap. <laughs> exactly. I was hoping to I was hoping to learn from the people who picked this up when it first was coming out. <laughs> uh, Turns yeah, out that's... y'all are just a little bit less confused than I am. A little bit. I think my favorite part of this whole issue is how in the middle of basically the equivalent of an antimatter wave heading at them, Superboy is just trying to pick up chicks. Yeah. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> I think that uh, was Anima. Yep. Oh, alright. <laughs> Chicken a helmet, remember? Yep. Oh, yeah, there she is. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but jumping right to the end of the issue, you know, talking about clues as to who the big bad is. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, um... Picking this up the green em- lantern ring. Yeah, Emerald Twilight ended with Hal Jordan, you know, after he became Parallax... He found his old ring lying on the ground where he left it, and he stomped on it, crushing it. And here he does the same thing with Alan Scott's. Yeah, yeah. It was it was this issue where like you know you see the hand pick up the ring, and then you see like at the very you know last page um, a mysterious caped figure in green dropping the ring and then crushing it. Like that's when like I'm starting to think it's like oh man could they possibly be bringing him in? Yeah, there's. A surprising amount of Green Lantern firsts in this miniseries. Like, we got the first, um, I believe it was last issue, it was the first meeting of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Right. We got the first display of Guy Gardner's Valdarian weapon out of your body powers. Um, I want to say this is the first time Kyle met Donna. Uh, I think so. Yeah, and like, I, they really don't. There's no really hint to anything beyond like, oh, now they know each other exists, but they're like they're around each other in a lot of panels. So I thought that was it. that was kind of cool to see. Yeah, well, like like what is it? Like last issue in Green Lantern, Alex was murdered. Oh uh, right. yeah, so maybe they had this in their heads that where they were gonna take this character. Possibly, mm-hmm. but yeah, but Kyle definitely wasn't thinking. It's like, ooh, let me try and make some moves on her. <laughs> but he did dive in front of a bolt for her. That's just because he's a cool guy. He's a stand-up dude. He shot through the heart. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, the, the issue right before this of Guy Gardner was him finally finding the uh, the warrior water and becoming, you know, this you know Guy Gardner warrior character. I thought it was odd how when you have army of people who can fly and levitate and teleport and you have to somehow figure out how you're going to transport this group of very fragile dying sickly old men you would choose to just pick up the chunk of the street they're standing on and just soar it through the air across town to the hospital like you wouldn't like like take them individually or like Secure, <laughs> secure them in some... No, let's, like, let's throw them there. Why not? 
Now, if I'm not mistaken, Alan Scott is Sentinel at this point, right? Not yet. No, he has not yet taken the name Sentinel. That uh, that happened in a story in uh, one of the Showcase uh, anthology maxi series. Uh, might actually not have happened until like the following year, but uh, yeah, he has not yet taken the name of Sentinel. Although uh, this thing with him being as young as he is is relatively new, because you'll notice throughout all of this, uh, even before Exton had his way with them, uh, Alan Scott is he does appear to be a little younger than his uh, the rest of his teammates. And that was uh, that that's uh, spinning out of uh, his strip in the just the, the Green Lantern core quarterly title. They had already taken steps to rejuvenate him there, so. I guess uh, the fact that that has something to do with why he gets to be the only one of the JSA who, at this point, has dodged the age bullet. Because they, they've already, you know, made him cool. They've, they've uh, <laughs> given him the potential to be marketable to all the kids. So I guess they didn't want to ruin that for him. You know, he's uh, he's got glowing green hands. He's got a nice flowing cape. He looks just enough like Spawn. I guess they figured they could package him <laughs> and sell him to all the little '90s rugrats. But yeah, yeah, the whole Sentinel thing, you know, the idea of him being like this uh, magical-powered hero didn't, uh, you know, guarding against magical threats didn't really come about until a little bit later. As of now, he's still just Green Lantern. And he has a shape-shifting ring. Yeah, it's different every time. <laughs> uh, it's weird that they didn't just usher him off the same way as the rest of the team, though. Cause, I mean, not only is, does he have the JSA stigma attached to him like the rest of them do, but... At this point, DC was still really firmly set in the mindset of, okay, Kyle Rayner's going to be the only one. So it's like, why, why, like, because you leave Alan Scott young and with the option of getting his powers back anytime he wants to, it's like you're leaving a door open when it doesn't really make sense considering what you just did to every other one of Alan's contemporaries. They left him in as a mentor to Kyle. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) I mean, like, it was. Yeah, like like uh, Adam said, it wasn't long after this that he became Sentinel. So Kyle was the only Green Lantern, and he also had this like father type figure, you know, that he could go to for answers about you know the Green Lantern ring. Oh, I've always hated that justification, though. I mean, I mean, you know, you've got this character, you've got the original Green Lantern wearing basically the same costume he did before. He's still using almost exactly the same powers. The only difference is he doesn't have a ring on. And like, oh yeah, no, he's not Green Lantern. No, no, it's totally different. Totally different. Uh, Too bad. Uh, Suck it, Kurtzky. <laughs> oh. Now, uh, who who thought that it was kind of, I don't know, out of left field that the, you know, one of the, the major things that they have to do is move a city that's about to crash land on you know, current time. Yeah. yeah it, it, it seemed like a little bit of a digression, didn't it? Yeah. Like, here, here's some busy work for the heroes to take care of to fill a few pages. Exactly. Yeah. I think they did that just because up to this point, really, like they've been gather, they've been gathering these heroes who really haven't had anything to do. <laughs> if you, I mean, the first two issues of this thing, or the first two or three, whatever. It, it feels like not a lot really happened, and everybody's just kind of running around saying something's going to happen, something's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's happening? And then the JSA gets killed. So it's like, it's, it, they would just be kind of standing around at this point, because they don't even know who or what they're even fighting. So like, I could say they kind of, it, it was basically kind of like busy work. Well, not to mention the fact that it's almost, because it's another quote-unquote crisis story... You in in crisis there was a whole lot of uh, quick shots to 
what other heroes from other times and alternate universes were doing while the the big quote the big main group was dealing with the the major threat at hand and it's almost like this little segment here is their kind of dealing with the repercussions of what's happening but because this is only like a four or five issue story rather than a 12 issue story it adds to that whole rushed feeling i was talking about earlier and it and it completely throws off in in my mind completely throws off the tempo of the story yeah you're kind of as i was reading i was just kind of waiting to see them get past it because i was pretty sure it wasn't going to have anything to do with what larger is going on the question I have, and this is probably going to be for you, Adam, because I don't think I don't think anyone else here has a history with this team. But um, <clears throat> the whole Team Titans thing, like uh, I can't say I have very much history with the Team Titans myself, actually, because uh, you know it was dead. Because Zero Hour is you know, that this this was my entry point to the DC universe, and so I was coming into DC Comics just as Team Titans were going out. Uh, so I never really got the full story, but uh, my understanding is well that they, they they're a spinoff from you know the new Titans, or formerly the new Teen Titans, um, and I think the idea was they were from the you know, Titans from uh, alternate futures uh, who uh, gathered together into these large you know armadas of heroes in order to fight a big bad whose name was I think Lord Chaos, and it turned out that he was like. Donna Troy's son all grown up or something like that. And then they ended up being trapped here in the 20th century and uh, trying to make a go of it and uh, trying to live like normal teenagers while training under their drill sergeant named Battalion uh, to become better superheroes so that they could ultimately go and take down Lord Chaos. And they had their own comic, which lasted for like 24 issues, I think. Number 24, the final issue being a zero-hour tie-in. And uh, so Zero Hour just reveals, uh, oh, hey, guess what? This whole concept is confusing people and doesn't sell very well. So uh, we're deciding we're going to just have it turn out that all of these Team Titans characters, except for like two that people seem to like, uh, they're all actually evil, mind-controlled slaves of Extant. And they're going to turn bad and attack all the heroes. They're going to turn out to be Extant's uh, brainwashed foot soldiers. Uh, but they do manage to save two of them, who we, we later learn via the power of retcon are actually native to the 20th century. Uh, the Mirage and Terra are the two. Uh, they get to stay behind. They join the new Titans post-Zero Hour under Arsenal's leadership. And all the other team Titans just vanish away, never to be seen again, and very few people miss them. And that's, that's all i got to say about that. Yeah. It, it's too bad that you don't know too much about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, like we all were curious. <laughs> You're like, ah, I'm not, I don't know that much about that. Well, the sad thing is, there's a lot more to say because it was a, it was like I said, a very convoluted concept. I just gave you the uh, extreme leaders' digest version there because that's that's all I can give you. Yeah, and I was curious because, like, it's like there are little lines here and there that may seem like, okay, are they intending this to be like a payoff? for the Teen Titans storyline from their series or something, but but from what yeah. you say, it sounds like it was kind of a tacked-on conclusion. Yeah, it was more like a cut-off for the Teen Titans storyline. Yeah, so, but these are characters that I guess they figured DC readers would at least sort of recognize. But like I said, I don't think they were missed or mourned by too many people. This whole issue just adds to the confusion that I was feeling. Just in the, in the synopsis itself, how I didn't understand that it was... It was Hank Hall from before he got Wave Rider's powers, kind of a thing. It's, 
Yeah, but speaking of which, yeah, this is why I don't like the extant character. Oh. Yeah, like, I, I, I can see that there's kind of a, a bit of uh, poetic, you know, ness to this whole thing, as far as the reason that Wave Rider was created was because Monarch, you know, was doing tests on people to get time travel abilities for himself. Mm-hmm. And that created Wave Rider. And here he is absorbing Wave Rider's powers and, you know, basically receiving that, you know, the gift that he was hoping to get since the very beginning. That's, it's poetic. But by the same token, you know, I love the Wave Rider character. So to kill him off like that, you know, it's. And to take his, his look. You know, it's like Wave Rider looks the way that Wave Rider does, and he's awesome. And now it's like it's Wave Rider's head on this costume. <laughs> I like the, the the costume of Extant, but when he's not wearing the mask and he's got the Wave Rider head, totally hate that. That that's like totally, totally hate that. And yet you would buy the action figure. <sighs> that's because he's a sucker for action figures. That is true. Well, if it was, well, well which action figure are you talking? About? The, uh, like if it was uh, an extant with a wave rider head? Yes. Like a variant figure? No, I wouldn't get the variant. I would get an extant and I would get a wave rider. Or what if it, what if it was an extant with two heads? You could pop one off and put the other on. I would buy that, and <laughs> if it had the wave rider head, head on it in package, then I would be forced to take it out of the package <laughs> to put the extant head on it. <laughs> nice. Oh, God. I thought it was a nice little, um, maybe last minute bit of misdirection. That, uh, when we see, we see at least two extents running around at the same time. So, like, that made me think, okay, maybe, maybe they could, maybe that, uh, other secret shadowy figure could still be extents, you know? And this is all with, like, hindsight already knowing who it is, but. You know, maybe if you're reading these as it came out, that would have put like a little twinge of doubt in your head as to, well, maybe, maybe this is who this is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now the fourth issue, number one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll I'll do this one. I'll do this one. Um, <clears throat> wait, wait, what about Adam? I was gonna give yeah. What about grand... Adam? I was gonna give Adam the grand finale. Oh, okay. All right. I'm a man of that. God. Jim Proceed. in trouble. <laughs> um, so uh, we open up. We got the this. This is as we mentioned before. There's a lot of stuff happening between issues, and it starts to. It's really showing here because you've got um, uh, Supergirl, Guy Gardner, Steel, and Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. They're kind of they're separated from the rest of the group, and all of these just multiple entropy fissures opening all over the place, which as we find out, is a result of the Time Trapper, who's still alive, or maybe this is before he got killed, I don't know. <laughs> um, he's shielding himself and at least two versions of the Legion. Three if you count himself, because he's Cosmic Boy from the f- more future future than either of those two. <laughs> but um, the still-yet-to-be-named or unveiled Big Bad shows up and cuts him in half, and which, well, that's an effective way to kill somebody. Um, cut to Power Girl giving birth and Wonder Woman being a bitch about it. And then the the time-traveling people start to disappear. Because, again, like, you know, 
um, in the last issue, the fissure that got closed by Metron's chair got reopened again. So now you've got the um, the future being retroactively... <laughs> the future is literally being retconned out of existence one year at a time, and we see Impulse disappear, and then Booster Gold disappears as they get closer and closer to the present day. And meanwhile, you know, uh, where, where are we? 40 minutes ago in Gotham City, <laughs> uh, Jay Garrick, who... I don't even know if he has super speed at this point because he's just, he's running, he's talking about how long it's taking him. He, he gets to the JSA brownstone and he's, he's yelling for the Spectre to show up and do something. And the, the Spectre basically says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. By the way, you're about to die. And then he dies. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Metron, who sees the writing on the wall, grabs his mother box and and just transports as many people as he can grab to Vanishing Point, um, where, you know, Extent's already been there and incapacitated the Linear Men, and they realize, all right, we need Wave Rider. Wave Rider's dead. They ba he basically sends Superman and Kyle Rayner out to, to grab that temporal probe that um, Docs sent out a few issues ago, so they can use it plus Linear Men technology plus uh, probably some crap metron had in his pockets to basically uh, how, how does this work the the one of one of the linear men an alternate timeline version of him dies and reincarnates as wave rider i think that's the origin so i, I guess off panel they kill this guy and turn him into wave rider <laughs> um but we don't but we don't see that we see something slightly happier as um on earth alan scott and uh ted knight the original Starman, they're in a hospital getting confirmation that, you know, some of the JSA is going to survive. And we actually, it's actually a nice little bit. We get the kind of the seeds planted for the James Robinson, Robinson Starman issue or Starman series. That's going to start with a zero issue right here. Uh, another nice little kind of contradictory thing considering they seem to hate the JSA right now. <laughs> um, you know, cut back to extent that's who's just going around being a douche to everybody <laughs> because he's he's very hands on in his victories. So he's cutting down <laughs> immortals and time travelers and and he basically says, you know, he goes to Batman and says, hey, hey Batman, you know, even I can't predict where these fissures will open. Oh wait, I can. And then Batman, <laughs> like one opens like in Batman, and he's just pulled <laughs> apart. It's awful. And, and he fries Guy Gardner. Everything's going terribly until the new Wave Rider, who I can't imagine is happy about being Wave Rider now, shows up, shoots its extent. <laughs> but it doesn't stop extent from, for some reason, turning Ray Palmer into a teenager. But then when Superman's just finally... He's had enough. He's going to take out extent. And that's when we get the big reveal. You know, Superman gets punched out by a green glowing fist as your friend and mine, Hal Jordan, shows up saying, It's me. I'm Parallax. I'm not letting you mess up my big plan to fix everything. This is it. It's all over. This is zero hour. We're going to we're we're going to make things better. And it <laughs> fades to white. <laughs> Wave Rider bursts onto the scene screaming I've lost my humanity! 
Yeah, the turning him into Wave Rider, like, as I was reading that, I realized that when I originally read it, I had absolutely no idea what they had done. Like, as far as I knew, there was still a Richard Rider out there and a Wave Rider. I just, what I just figured what happened was they plucked an earlier Wave Rider out of the time stream or something and basically made, like, a Wave Rider carbon copy kind of thing. Did they do that? No. I kind of I thought they murdered this guy. <laughs> yeah, well, ba- basically they, they took some artificial sweetener and a microwave <laughs> and uh, set it off right next to the guy, and that turned him into Wave Rider. I think that was Captain Adam's origin. <laughs> Now, something that I was kind of confused by, you know, I mean, in story, it's a very good explanation of why it happened, but making Ray Palmer an 18-year-old. I mean, I know from here he goes on to be part of the Teen Titans for a while. and mm-hmm. Also but, written by Dan Jurgens, so I'm sure the whole thing was his idea. Yeah, but why? It's, it's I mean, I I don't think he was all that old to begin with, was he? I mean, why, why the the decision I mean did, did people perceive the Adam as being too old and inaccessible or what what was up with this well it was one of the few major silver age DC icons that hadn't had some kind of major overhaul lately you know he hadn't had his back broken or been killed or replaced or any or turned bad or anything like that so I guess they thought ah, what the heck let's you know, they, they threw like darts at a board and it came up make him a teenager they went ahead with that. Like I said, I think Jurgens is probably the one responsible. He he uh, he he had this idea for a Teen Titans relaunch, and uh, I guess he wanted an existing character to serve as like the uh, the, the character of central interest. And uh, I guess he thought, hey, let's let's take an existing big name character, turn him into a teenager, and put him in there. And, uh, of course, uh, it's not as if DC didn't already have a few legitimate actual teenagers that they could use for this, but uh, okay. it's just the way they decided to go. I think uh, the the Starman thing, it, I don't think it's so much that they, you know, said, oh, let's, you know, let's say screw you to the JSA, as they said, ooh, look, we have this this whole team where we can basically harvest their powers and give them to another, you know, a younger generation. Because that's, that's kind of what they did, like, you know, with the, the character of Fate, you know, now it's like, you don't have this, this old couple merging to become Dr. Fate, and now it's this young guy that, you know, looks like he's on the WB or something like that. <laughs> you know, you have the, the Starman thing, which, you know, uh, according to a whole bunch of people that have read that, say that that series turned out pretty good, but, I mean, like... This this goes a long way in kind of I don't want to say paving the way, but it continued the paving of the the legacy heroes. You know, it basically it made the JSA step out of the way so that the younger generation could step in. Kind of makes sense. I mean, Alan Scott even handed Kyle or he gave his ring to Kyle Rayner and said, you know, here carry this into battle. You know. Now, Jim, are you reading this from the issues? Yes. The reveal, the splash page reveal of Parallax standing there. Is is that a page turn reveal or is it on the right side? That is a page turn reveal. Okay, because in the trade, it's on the right hand side, and I, 
and I was hoping that was just because of the way it worked out for the trade, because if they had been doing a good job of keeping this secret, and then they blow it a page early, that would have been so awful. Mm. <laughs> uh, does Parallax appear on the cover of the trade, George, you're looking at? He does. Yeah. That's, something, that's something I was actually going to bring up later. Like, I don't... <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think it's a secret anymore, but still, you know. Yeah. So, and you could argue on the cover; it doesn't explicitly say he's the bad guy because it's, it's all of these characters rushing forward. But he does look the most evilly out of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> what you call it with uh, the last page? Like this is one of the things that I really you know thought was neat about the whole zero hour tie-ins how they would all kind of, like, fade to white at the end. And something that I didn't actually pick up on until, you know, recent reading, you know, Hal Jordan says, who knows, maybe one universe, one world won't be enough. Mm, yes, that gave me chills the first time I read that page. Hmm. I wasn't so, all that familiar with the multiverse at that time, but I knew enough about it to know I thought it was cool as hell, and the idea that Zero Hour might have brought it back, it really it got me excited. Now, did it? It didn't. It didn't. But I, you know, we were kind of being teased that it might. So as far as we knew, as of zero hour number one, maybe in the next issue we discovered there'd suddenly be a few extra Earths floating around. It's, that that didn't happen, but it would have been cool if it did. So I think wasn't the next stop after zero hour uh, uh, the the invention of hypertime over yes. in the kingdom? Yes, exactly. And there's, I'll have more to say about that a little later. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, if they wanted to, they could probably, well, not that they would, they they obviously would never do this, <laughs> but I suppose if they wanted to, they could go back to this and be like, oh yeah, you know what, Hal Jordan actually did create an extra universe, if they wanted to like, you know, play around with maybe like an additional 52 that sprung out of that side universe. Mm, they could do that. Yeah, I agree. I don't see them actually doing that at this yeah, point. No. <laughs> Somebody might. All right. Anybody else have anything more for this issue? Um, this this nope. is like the issue that the most happens, and like we have the least to say about it. <laughs> Take it away, Merd. All right. Counting down to number zero, the fifth of five. And the issue opens with a white page, as the last issue ended with one. And uh, we come in in the middle of Hal Jordan's uh, classic villain soliloquy, explaining his motivations, uh, counting down uh, how he got to this point in his life and uh, why he is now doing what he is doing. He explains that he does, in fact, have the power to uh, remake all of creation, compensate for all of his mistakes and those made by others, namely his bosses, the guardians of the universe. Uh, He's still very bitter about their um, what he perceives as their betrayal of him in uh, refusing to let him rebuild his beloved coast city after it was destroyed by Mongol. So he is planning to use the emerald power now at his disposal to remake the entire space-time continuum, atom by atom, tachyon by tachyon, from scratch, and make everything, quote-unquote, the way it should be. He's stressing very hard that uh, he, he does not regard himself as a villain. He's just trying to make everything right. And he has gathered to himself a handful of characters who seem to have the most to gain from this restructuring of reality. A few um, uh, parallel universe residents, 
who uh, probably would cease to exist if time went back to being what it was. Uh, Triumph from the the JLA uh, books introduced in the JLA, JLI, and JLTF task force uh, crossovers to zero hour. Also the parallel Batgirl we saw in issue four, and Alpha Centurion from the Superman titles, and Guy Gardner is there too, uh, listening warily, not much liking what he hears, but of course this is Hal talking. (laughs) And so... Uh, Hal Jordan uh, proceeds to continue to explain uh, his plans to remake everything, undo all the bad things that have been happening. Guy Gardner gives him an earful. Uh, Hal, uh, Guy chews him out for uh, siding with a slime like Extant. Uh, Hal kind of blows him off, as Hal will. And then uh, eventually we cut away from all of this and go to Vanishing Point, where uh, the few heroes that Wave Rider was able to snatch out of the final uh, release of entropy, uh, ponder uh, what uh, few moves are left to them to try and salvage some small sliver of the reality they once knew and uh, remake everything more or less as it had been. Um, Green Arrow is there, uh, Darkstar, the Ray, uh, the new uh, composite hawk being, Captain Adam, Leary Lee of the Linear Men, uh, Kyle Rayner, and uh, the Adam, Superman, and Damage. Another quintessential 90s character who later uh, found new life and new significance as a member of the JSA. But as of right now, he is very much the new hero on the block. His own comic was only six issues in when all the Zero Hour stuff was happening, and yet he's going to prove to be pivotal in uh, the final solution that uh, the assembled heroes come up with. Uh, They decide they're going to try and do something similar to what Hal Jordan is doing, recreate time from scratch, but make it more or less the way it had been before Hal and Exton started mucking with it. So... Finally, uh, the uh, assembled heroes take the fight to Extant and his small crew of uh, reluctant sympathizers. There's a, a small fight breaks out. Uh, it's kind of one-sided. Jordan is, has enough power to handle all of them until here comes the deus ex machina. Finally, for no particular reason, the Spectre decides that this is the moment when uh, things have gotten bad enough for him to bother to act. He shows up, you know, the, the third act uh, surprise save. Um, you know, again, it's one of many uh, more or less deliberate uh, structural parallels to the original Crisis when the Spectre showed up in the late going to face the Anti-Monitor. He does the same thing to Parallax here. He shows up, binds Parallax in mystical chains. That doesn't hold him for long, however. Uh, more fighting continues, so ideological debates break out between the various characters over who's really in the right here. All anybody really wants is to exist in a world that uh, seems right to them. So this uh, this continues for a while. Uh, Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow, who has been seriously conflicted throughout all of this, wondering whether or not he can really go up against his old friend Hal, finally realizes that uh, Hal is in fact corrupt. He is definitely in the wrong in wanting to snuff out trillions and trillions of lives in order to recreate the universe from square one. So uh, finally it falls to Kyle Rayner, uh, the inheritor of the Green Lantern man, mantle, to uh, throw down with Hal Jordan and uh, distract him long enough for uh, the other heroes to make their move. Uh, the Ray, Superman, Captain Adam, and Darkstar all funnel their particular forms of energy into Wave Rider, who strains it and channels it into damage. Damage, meanwhile, saves up all this power, lets it build within him, and uh, finally... When the time comes, he prepares to release it in a single cataclysmic creative blast that will basically be a new Big Bang to restart the post-zero-hour DC universe. 
Uh, before he's able to do that, uh, Hal Jordan breaks free from Kyle's uh, attempts to restrain him. He blasts, uh, he tries to blast damage. Batgirl throws herself in the way, takes uh, a blast to where else? The waste. That's the way it always seems to happen for her. Um, and then uh, Kyle gets a hold of him again, but it's Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow, who finally lands the killing stroke. Gets them right in the chest with an arrow, which is enough to you know, finally take the fight out of him. You've got to think it's as much Oliver's betrayal as his arrow that uh, takes the fight out of Hal in the end. Uh, so uh, Hal and Kyle kind of sink out of sight. Uh, the specter seems to do something to spirit them away. Um, and then finally Damage is allowed to release all the energy he's been absorbing, creating the new Big Bang. And we're treated to a little uh, narrative of uh, the gradual recreation of the DC Universe timeline, uh, meanwhile, Leary Lee is watching everything happening in, Va- in Vanishing Point. The other heroes are also outside the time stream, biding their time until just the right point for them to re-enter it, to keep themselves from fading out of existence altogether. Uh, as as uh, the pages uh, turn here, we see uh, different uh, important points in DC Universe history pointed out to us. For example, we see the, uh, well, the, the the foundation of Atlantis. We see uh, a temple where the power of Shazam uh, takes its origin, which is sort of foreshadowing the Power of Shazam series that will be debuting within a year of this, you know, written and drawn by Jerry Ordway, who is the inker of this whole zero-hour thing. And eventually, the heroes, uh, they come to exactly the point in time and space when Wave Rider says, it's okay, everybody back into the pool, and they re-enter the time stream. It is explained to them that uh, all of time and space was destroyed, but uh, they were able to uh, rebuild everything more or less the way it had been with a few subtle differences. story more or less ends with... The, it, it tries to end on a high note because Power Girl is standing there with her baby, and she says, oh, we should, all, we should feel great. This is the ultimate victory. Life. Never mind the fact that uh, her baby turns out to be a mystical demon succubus later on. But, uh, so we, we need not to spoil the moment with that at this point. Uh, Ollie Queen, however, is in no mood to celebrate. He's really broken up over what's gone down here with his old friend Hal, and he shatters his bow in anger and grief and frustration and uh, strikes a classic superheroic angst pose. Um, and we see that uh, life goes on uh, for everyone. It's like all this stuff happens, and all of a sudden the story is pretty much over. Uh, we get a quick shot of the linear man back in Vanishing Point, observing everything, making sure that this new timeline continues to run like clockwork. And we end with the shot of a mysterious new time trapper. So we're pretty much back to, you know, the story's come full circle. We began with the old time trapper getting fried, and now there's a new one in his place. Those answers, but as far as what's new about this uh, new timeline, those answers will unfold in time. That's the final word of the series. And then on the inside of the back cover, we've got a triple double-sided gatefold uh, providing us uh, what is described as a definitive timeline of events in this new post-zero hour DC universe, uh, which uh, really is not not too many differences from what we've understood we've uh, gone before, Um, but it does uh, nail down how many or what the difference in time from the present is, uh, how long ago in relation to the present certain important DC events, when they happened, the first appearances of various characters. And uh, as far as the future, you know, we've uh, one of the 
uh, outcomes, upshots of this whole affair, is that uh, alternate timelines and alternate futures have supposedly been eliminated from uh, the DC universe. So the future is largely uncharted. The only things that DC at this juncture wanted to commit to saying definitely will happen are uh, the Reverse Flash, Booster Gold, and Legion Superheroes. And as far beyond that, uh, the future is wide open for exploration. And that is where this whole thing uh, ends. And uh, a few more uh, answers and explications uh, would then unfold in the course of the zero month that followed. So there you go, zero hour number zero. Yeah, that timeline at the end has been a point of contention for a lot of people, like including uh, people at DC. Like I think Dan DiDio himself like hates, like hated seeing that thing. Like it nailed down too much. I'm trying to remember what he said, but he said something like, "It uh, it boxes them in a little too much mm-hmm. as far as he was concerned." Yeah, I think it's kind of a fool's errand to try and uh, reduce any kind of comic book universe to any sort of definitive structure or, or, or the sequence of events, because, you know, changes are always going to be made later on. I mean, you got to leave yourself a little bit of wiggle room. What's what's crazy, just for those of you who, who are aware, the little lead figures that uh, some company is putting out of, of DC characters, they come with a little magazine chronicling the history of that character, uh-huh. and in the, in the back of each of those issues is yet another piece of a DC timeline. Really? So as much as much as they hate this, or Dan DiDio supposedly hates this, they're doing it again right now. God. Is it like this timeline like that's in our hands right now, or is it like... I haven't compared it yet, but I would imagine so. There's just a whole lot more detail. It's almost like, like a, t- uh, a very select chunk of time. We should enjoy that for the next three to five years until they need to do it again. <laughs> right. Yeah, fans seem to be willing to lay down the money for definitiveness, you know, fleeting and illusory as it tends to be in the context of the DC universe. You know, something I thought was interesting, and I totally forgot about it up until right now, is how um, up to this point, Guy Gardner's kind of been... Well, he's been, he's been kind of looking to exploit this whole time travel thing to try and figure out, figure out a way to get, you know, Coast City back and the Green Lantern Corps back and all that. And then when we get the reveal of how it's Hal Jordan behind this, and that's, that's exactly his plan, and Guy starts to see like the implications of that and what you have to do to achieve that, it's it's like it's it's the the classic you know be careful what you wish for kind of thing, where he's like oh well I didn't really think about you know we would lose all life that ever lived or would live. <laughs> Well, how much of that do you think is him realizing the cost, and how much of that do you think it's him realizing, oh, wait, it's Hal that's doing this. I don't want it to be Hal. Because then the, he's still got a, a pretty a pretty uh, angry hard-on for this guy, right? I mean, he still hates Hal to his core for the most part. He probably sees this as just an ultimate validation of the suspicions he's had about Jordan all along. What you call it? The the one thing that that struck me with this issue was that everybody is telling Parallax that you know you can't do that, you can't restart the uh, the universe and and fix everything, you know you you can't you can't you can't don't do it, you know it's like but you don't understand you know I I'm gonna make this better I'll make three Earths so that you know everybody has an Earth to go to. And, you know, everybody will be happy, and we won't have to deal with these tragedies. 
And everybody's just like, no, 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 you can't. You can't. But they never really do a good job of explaining why you can't. I mean, like, I mean, obviously, like, if you take out one bad thing, then, you know, how do you make sure that events happen in such a way that things keep happening to get to a further point where you would have to change a bad thing or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, you have the whole concept of, well, what is a bad thing? What do you change? You know, do you change World War II? You know, if you change World War II, then a lot of people aren't going to get born, you know, to become the heroes and friends that you have in present day. Uh, Like, conceptually like that, like, okay, I understand why you can't do this. But, like, they're just like, no, 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 you can't do this. Yeah, I think there was one panel somewhere in this issue where someone said, you know, Hal thinks he's a god. Hal thinks he's god now. Ollie and, says and it. Yeah, and they just kind of move past. I mean, it's I guess it's just the idea that all right, they fought gods before. They they know people who would be gods, and and it's the whole. Um, I think Ollie even says later, you know, absolute power does corrupt absolutely. It was the whole. Um, like, if you let Hal Jordan go through with this, he's just going to be unfathomably more dangerous than he even thinks he is. But it's, it's more like what we bring to it from, like, two lines of dialogue. Yeah, I, I mean, like, it's it's almost like the reason that they don't want him to do this or to be able to get away with it is because of all the people that he's killing, wiping out this universe in order to start the new universe. And he tries to explain to them that all those people he's wiping out are going to live again in, the, in this new time he's, he's trying to create. But that that explanation doesn't satisfy them either. Yeah. Well, my question for you guys who were picking this up as it came out, did you buy that it was Parallax, like that he had enough power to do all this? Like even when he explains how he got enough power to do this? Because when I picked up this trade after the fact, you know, a couple of years ago, it was, I already knew it was Parallax, but even as I was reading it, I was like, really? Hal Jordan has enough power to do all of this? Like, I didn't buy that. It's almost like you'd have to create the entire universe, you know, quark by quark, just using nothing but uh, green energy. Yeah. My first thought was when he recreated Coast City that way in uh, Green Lantern number 48. But uh, that, of course, was nothing but a... Just, just a, a ring phantom. It was just an in, insubstantial simulacrum of reality. So you got to wonder if you know how how satisfyingly real this new universe of his would have ultimately been. I suppose part of my hang-up with the fact that he had that much power is the fact that I had already read, you know, Rebirth and understood that Parallax was an entity, and that that knowledge was seeping into my mind as really this fear entity. Plus, some green energy has enough power to do this, to reset the universe? Well, the thing that you're not taking into account is the fact that you have a, uh, the Parallax you know, entity, which not that that was included in, in this knowledge, but right. he had the, you know, the full power of the Green Lantern central power battery, which you know, we would think is a lot of energy. Not enough to cre- cre- you know, recreate a universe, but it's a lot of energy. And he does go on to explain in the series that he figured out a way to slip into the time stream and he was absorbing, you know, power and energy from the 
the anomalies left over from the original crisis. Right. So he was kind of doing what the anti-monitor had done in the original crisis, because he, he didn't really create this wall of antimatter. That was triggered by uh, Pariah's experiments, but he figured out a way to use it to his advantage, to harness it and use it as an engine of destruction to wipe out the multiverse. So similarly, Hal is taking advantage of this pre-existing uh, uh, flaw in the foundation of the DC universe to unravel the whole damn thing and remake it according to his wishes. Yeah, so I mean, like, if you imagine, like, it's crisis on infinite Earths. So, you know, if he's absorbing all of the anomalies that there are from infinite Earths that were condensed down into one Earth, like, there's potentially enough energy to recreate infinite Earths. Part of me wonders, though, like, would it have been a better ending if, if you know, they if they failed to stop Hal Jordan, he went through with it, but, you know, as Chad says, like, what if he tried and he failed? You know, he's he's wiped out absolutely everything, and he's put everything he has into trying to kickstart it the right way in Air Bunnies, and, and it's not enough. And, like, what would that do to him? And then, like, and, like, have, have, um, Wave Rider figure out a way to like they could even fix it the same way they did here. You know they could leech off, off the ambient energy from Hal's failed attempt and get a boost from the Spectre and use damage to make a big bang. But give Hal that kind of kind of I went this far and it was for nothing. Like that could have been like an interesting thing to explore. You got a little bit of that in that Green Lantern Zero issue though. When we did. Kyle when Kyle stood up to him and. <laughs> Blew the hell out of Oa. We did, and you know that's something I wanted to bring up because does anybody else think it's like a crime against humanity that that issue is not collected as the final chapter in this trade? <laughs> yes. Like it feels like the story ends there, not here. It's more like an epilogue, yeah. I guess. Hmm. Um, what you call it with the the end of this, you know, <laughs> issue zero. Two, two, two things were, were interesting. Uh, first off, the energy of the universe at the beginning, you know, is yellow. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the one weakness of a Green Lantern, which is a nice touch. But beyond that, they can't see it. They can't see through it. So just like Krona couldn't see the, you know, the beginning of time, you know, so the Linear Men can't do it either. Yeah. Uh, I took that entire page... In the trade, it's page 139. <laughs> um, I took that entire page as, like, a reference to Ganthet's tale. Because you've got, like, they, they mentioned the reflective thing that you can't see past, and then they even say, like, they even say, you know, here came a, um, uh, 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 a bolt of entropy, and the universe was born old. So, like, that's... That's yeah. You know, after after like a, a few months ago, we said there was no one ever brought up Ganthet's tale again. Here we are. <laughs> now, I don't want to take us off track, but I did have a question, Jim. I, I know for a fact that you part of the reason you don't like what's going on with Flash right now is because of how the fact that Wally is your Flash. Now, I, Adam, I don't know your history with the character, but when when Wally died in this story for apparently no reason, how did that make you feel? <laughs> it's, it was stupid. I mean, it, it's almost like a Flash has to die in a crisis just for the hell of it regardless. 
it reminded me of Infinite Crisis, where they, again, they kind of killed off Wally, maybe, for just kind of tradition. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. It's just become a, a ritual. And they've, you know, they've forgotten the rationale behind it. Whenever a crisis comes along, you kill a flash. <laughs> or you might anger the gods otherwise. Yeah. I'd like to see whoever writes the next crisis... Just assume, just have someone in the story give the obligatory, you know, it's it's the coming of a crisis line. And then whoever's the Flash or a speedster right there just throws his arms up, goes, nope, not going to do it, and then just leave. <laughs> but but Dan, in the story. <laughs> but Dan, they already had Final Crisis. There are no more crises coming up. Ah, oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> We're never going to get another one ever again. Ultimate Crisis. Never- <laughs> oh man! I'd, I'd rather I'd rather see a scene where uh, it's like they, you know they announce that the crisis is coming to all the heroes, and they're just like, "Oh crap!" And then some hero just like turns to the Flash, pulls out a gun, and shoots him to death. Oh god! <laughs> uh, yeah. Speaking of that, well, not that, but <laughs> but um, Adam, you know, as as a a child of the crisis, as someone who's like, that's your favorite thing in DC history, basically. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Zero Hour as a crisis story? Uh, as a crisis story, it it didn't really... Uh, it, it's, it certainly deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, it's a member of, of the crisis species. You know, it's got all the you know, necessary trappings and earmarks, and it did you know, accomplish a couple of changes. You know, I, I get a, a little bit of the same thrill out of reading it that I did out of reading Crisis on Infinite Earths, but only a small fraction. Um, but as far as, uh, unfortunately, it also uh, lives up to the legacy of Crisis in its ultimate inadequacy as a, uh, a solution to certain continuity woes. Uh, it, it didn't really, it didn't really make too many things easier to understand. I mean, it, 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 I do think it helped the Legion. And I will say that much. That it was my in to the Legion of Superheroes uh, part of the DC Universe, which I had refused to touch up to that point. So I'll, I'll give it a little bit of credit for making that a little more accessible. But, uh, yeah, on the whole, it's uh, definitely a distant second to its immediate predecessor. You know, when I did my master's thesis about Crisis on Infinite Earths, I gave Zero Hour, like, a one-paragraph mention, but that was it. Jeez, that thing's, like, 18 pages long. Wow. Well, a lot longer than 18, bro. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I couldn't remember, so I'm like, ah, oh, I don't think I'll lowball by that much, but I probably did. Um, I've, I, I've got a thesis on my e-reader. It's a lot longer than 18 pages. Do you, do you have space for other things? Yeah. The Zero Hour mentions on page 107, just to give you an idea. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Um, no, I kind of like... I. I kind of liked how they tried to kind of thematically keep crisis stuff in there, like, like um the whole um the encroaching entro- entropy waves had that mm-hmm. very uh, antimatter wave feel to them, and and um you know just thumbing through the pages now, maybe it's just because I haven't seen the ca- the character of Harbinger in a long time, but uh, Larry Lee, this linear man person, looks a lot like her. I don't know. Kind of if, does, yeah. I don't know if that was like always her design, or if they purposely wanted someone who looked Harbinger-esque to be plugged in here. 
that's been her design as far as I can remember. You can almost plug Wave Rider into the pariah role because he starts this whole thing out by uh by going to timeline after timeline only to see it die and you know blinking out of there just in time to go to the next one. Yep, that that is a very important parallel, I would say. Just, uh, no, not just the fact that the characters kind of look alike and fulfill similar functions, but the fact that they are uh, uh, characters that are sort of summoned up uh, uh, for the purpose of the story. You know, characters that are uh, whose primary, uh, who are not, uh, well, shall we say, mainstream DC universe protagonists usually, and yet they become like important. Uh, figures in the course of the story. I mean, Crisis on Infinite Earths did the same thing with its little group of Harbinger and Pariah, Alex Luther, and so on. Uh, by uh, giving them the role of uh, prime protagonists in this story, they, they, they keep it from being too dominated by any one existing DC character. It doesn't become too much a Superman story or a Flash story or a Batman story or whatever. It's allowed to be just a DC universe story with these sort of neutral middle parties you know, taking over most of the action. So that, that's a strategy that uh, Wolfman and Perez used in Crisis, and uh, Jurgens uses it again with uh, characters of, 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 of Wave Rider and Linear Men, all of whom, but I guess it's important to mention, he did create at earlier times. Like the Linear Men turned up in his Superman run, and Wave Rider, as we've mentioned, spun out of Armageddon 2001, which Jurgens co-wrote. I think all in all, in all like the this, it was very, I want to say it's claustrophobic event. Mm-hmm. It was like I've I took notes after like I didn't realize what it was after a while, but then like they hit you with I think there's like three splash pages in these five issues, and it hit me like I and I think it's just a sign of like me being used to more, um, more recent and contemporary comic book events where their their focus is on kind of the big big screen cinematic kind of storytelling, whereas this like everything it this is very like it was. Maybe densely packed is the wrong word, but there's a lot of information and a lot of characters and a lot of panels on every page, you know? Well, it's like what I was saying earlier. This is this is another crisis. Crisis on Infinite Earths had a lot of issues to, to pan everything out, and it, it it was a big sweeping storyline with a lot of characters, yeah. So it was, as has me just having read that storyline a couple months ago, it's it still felt a little rushed, but this is just what five issues of a bunch of characters, big overarching story. Not to mention the fact you got this whole time hopping thing going on in, right in the middle of it. it it's it, it 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 can't not be rushed unless it had more issues. You know, it was almost like a breath of fresh air when uh. Hal Jordan faded everything to white for like three pages, <laughs> and, then, and then it like it brought it faded back in. Which I love that page where it's just the panel borders are slowly forming along with the globes, and then and it's almost like after taking a little breather, the everything's more focused and happening at a more like kind of almost relaxed pace as it goes towards the end. What you call it? Uh, you guys are reading this in trade, right? I, yeah. So you didn't get to see the covers? Uh, I the, the the covers for zero through four are all in here. Yeah, they're in the very back, but it's it it doesn't separate the chapters by covers. But you got to see the like the the, the progression of the theme for the covers. Yes. 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 
that, that that I like. That's you know you have this like they fit next. Not that they fit next to each other, but like you know it's it's interesting how you can see the progression, how the zero hour is coming closer, in the the explosion you know growing in the background. Yeah, so you get gradually less stuff on every cover until the final one is just blank. Oh, and the first cover is fairly uh, crisis-esque. And then in the back of the tray, there's a uh, a letter from Casey Carlson. Oh, I didn't see that. In regard, yeah, this... in regards okay. to what? It's just basically pimping the event and saying stuff stuff like reorganize, revitalize, and renewed. There's a lot of exclamation points and happiness and. <laughs> Wait till you see what comes, kind of stuff. Um, Adam, you want yes. to uh, fill everybody in on uh, Equinox? Equinox? The the son of Power Girl. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, that. Uh, well, again, uh, I'm gonna have to plead the Teen Titans defense because I don't really <laughs> know exactly what happened with that. But I basically already told you everything I knew that it turned out to be some kind of demon spawn and. Uh, it played out in Justice League America, and I never really read those issues. Who's the father? Or is there one? The Force. <laughs> uh, that's why Power Girl can, is so strong. She has a midichlorian count of, like, 18 billion. Amazing. <laughs> um, you know, before I forget again, <laughs> I want to make sure, like, everybody knows, like, the creators on this story. All right, it, was, it, it was written by Dan Jurgens. It was drawn by Dan Jurgens. It was inked by Jerry Ordway, and the colorist was Gregory Wright. <laughs> and and uh, this, I think this is the first Big Two event that I've read or know of that's by... It's basically written and drawn by just one guy. And obviously, like, other people did other things, but, like, like usually you get, like, your big-name writer and your big-name artist who, you know, individually bring, like, their talents and their fan bases to this thing to to make this fantastic collaboration that people are clamoring for, but it's it's almost weird, like, it's, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say weird, I feel like I've called enough about this thing weird, but it's, it's unexpected to see an event book just spearheaded almost entirely by one person. I mean, this would be like if Jeff Johns also drew Blackest Night by himself. <laughs> and I wonder if that's, because, I mean, at, towards the beginning, I, I commented on how I felt this story seemed kind of smaller. Not in terms of significance, but in terms of um, just... Scope? The, yeah, the scope of the story. Thank you. And, like, because it's coming from this one person who's pulling double duty, basically. So, you know, does that impact on the final product we got, whether it be a positive or a negative? Wait, say that again? Um... Like, does the fact that Jurgens was basically doing most of this by himself, um, is that... Because, I mean, Zero Hour is essentially... Except for the weird time travel bits here and there, it's a pretty straightforward, kind of simple, small story. I wonder if that was a result of Jurgens pulling double duty and doing, like, all the story and all the art by himself. You know? I mean, I'm not, like, I'm not asking anybody for answers. I'm just, like, conjecturing and thinking out loud. Could be. Also contributing to it might be the fact that Jurgens is well, well, he's really better known as an artist than a writer, and uh, he didn't probably didn't have wasn't all that comfortable you know, pulling a double duty like this, especially not on a story of this size. 
I mean, even on like Armageddon 2001, which as I mentioned he co-wrote, he was still only like one of the writers attached to that project. It wasn't entirely his brainchild. So yeah, you're, you're right, he may have been stretching himself a little bit thin with this, and he was given an awful lot to juggle in this story. I mean, you mentioned earlier, Dan, that this uh, that this move, this story kind of felt like uh, he was just kind of checking things off a checklist. Okay, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, we've got to kill off Flash, we've got to you know, do this thing in, in this time period, we've got to introduce these characters that are going to be spun off into a series later, we've got to kill the JSA or retire them. And, and so it's, it's really like a, it reads a bit more like a bundle of editorial directives masquerading as a story than it has an actual story. And so you you got to figure that uh, with the laundry list of things that uh, various editors and writers are probably asking Jurgens to accomplish here, that that might have distracted him from you know, crafting things in a more satisfying way, from giving us the sense of scope, of, 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 of apocalyptic urgency that uh, we might otherwise have gotten out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Like, how would he fit? You know, any any more scope into it with all the other ideas that he, that have to compete for space. Now let's talk about the ramifications of Zero Hour because, like, obviously they didn't want this to do a whole heck of a lot, but they expected it to have certain ramifications throughout the DC universe. Well, are, are we talking about that still have uh, significance today? Uh, we can, yeah. We can, yeah, because that, that was in my mind, too. Because, I mean, we're reading this something like 17 or 18 years after the fact, and, you know, that's probably not a fair fair uh, measuring stick to hold to a, a superhero story universe that's constantly reinventing itself. But, I mean, there's certain things from, like, from that long ago and longer that still have reverberations today. But, I mean, like, like certain things like the Hawkman fix is completely Ugh. gone <laughs> yeah like that's completely gone um the let's, Legion... let's put it let's, let's put it this way cgs had an entire episode trying to <laughs> trying to sort that out and it still left everybody sitting there going you know they really didn't fix anything it's still convoluted <laughs> yeah <laughs> the the way that it is now like uh you know after blackest night and into brightest day like, if I don't pay any attention to anything that came before, then, you know, it's a pretty interesting story. It almost seems, looking back on it, it's more interesting as, almost as a Green Lantern story, just as, like, the next step in Hal Jordan's journey. The Zero which, Yeah, which is almost, I feel like, is unfair to say, because that really doesn't even come into it until the final issue. Well, that's not that's not unfair because that is why I bought the trade. Oh, because I wanted to learn more about Hal Jordan. I wanted to see why the, this character needed to be redeemed. I wanted to see what he had done pre Brightest Day. I mean, pre uh, Green Lantern Rebirth to make him feel like he deserved to be connected to the Spectre and all of this. And that's why I picked up Zero Hour is because I wanted to see one of the things that Hal Jordan did to make him feel like he deserved to pay penance for it. Yeah. And obviously it's because of Zero Hour we got things like like um the the Archie Legion, which is still it's it's still in continuity in the multiverse today. We've we got the the uh James Robinson era Starman out of it, which in turn gave us an actual good era for the Justice Society, 
Um, and that, uh, I had another written down, and it appears to be gone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God it killed off Wally West, though. Man, I'm so, <laughs> so glad we've never seen him again after this. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, <laughs> so I guess we're not going to talk about Green Lantern number zero? Well, you can talk about it. If you want. Well, I mean, you know, I guess we're not doing the synopsis and whatnot. I, I mean, like, I, I just think it's funny. Like, if you, it, it's it's absolutely not a good jumping on point now, because like basically everything that ha- that's in this issue is has been completely undone. You know, hmm. Kyle Rayner, Kyle Rayner's a Green Lantern, but he's not the only Green Lantern. Um, Hal Jordan is a Green Lantern and not Parallax anymore. All the Guardians are alive. Oa is, you know, still still existing. Kilowog, whose skull they they play with quite a bit here, he's <laughs> back back to the living. I, I mean, like, it, it, basically everything about this issue is like completely dated. Not to mention the fact that that Kyle's a completely relatable and actual hero because he has enough enough uh, wherewithal to take the hard choice and blow up Oa. Oa. Whereas nowadays, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what's funny? The um, if you had skipped the Zero Hour miniseries altogether and just read Green Lantern, because I I basically did back then, it goes from like Green Lantern fifty five to Green Lantern Zero, and fifty five is basically Alan Scott filling in Kyle Rayner on on a uh, Hal Jordan's whole deal, his rise and fall. And how you know you know we're we're probably going to end up calling on you to help take him out because you're his successor, and that that issue ends with uh, the shot of Metron and Superman coming to get Kyle, and then number zero shows Kyle Rayner you know trying to stop Hal Jordan because he's his successor. So you would have questions between the two, but you could pretty much go from fifty-five to zero and not really worry about it. Yeah. If you say so. Hooray! <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thankful that I did read them. Yes. Now, as, as someone who's read all of the uh, the tie-ins, well, is anything significant in those other issues, Adam? Um, I mean, all, all of the uh, various tie-ins? Yeah. Well, well significant to the zero-hour story or significant uh, to the, the present day, you mean? Uh, significant to the Zero Hour story because, as Dan and I both said, we feel like the Green Lantern Zero issue should be a part of the Zero Hour story because of of the wrapping up. But, yeah, yeah, it's it's like Zero Hour, I don't know, negative one or or negative zero point five or something like that. It, it definitely does read and read as and function as a, uh, a an, epilogue, an epilogue, a postlude to the story. And it does not actually function in the way that these zero-month issues were meant to. I mean, the whole the whole idea behind these zero-month issues was that they were supposed to provide a convenient jumping-on point for readers who don't know much about the characters or titles uh, uh, involved. Um, and uh, Green Lantern number zero really is not, it, as you said, it, it's not a good jumping-on point for someone who's more familiar with the uh, the status quo of the Green Lantern Corps nowadays, but it's also not a good stop the jumping on point for someone in 1994, because it, it doesn't give you a whole lot of the basics of the history of the Green Lantern Corps or what the ring is supposed to be. It, it, it just leads, it, it's continued directly from 
either well Green Lantern 55 or Zero Hour number zero, depending on you know in what order you were reading. But it's yeah, not a very good jumping on point at all. Uh, but uh, yeah, as far as uh, Zero Hour tie-ins uh, that are really you know, important to the main story, um, a lot of them are just uh, kind of you know, uh, well to, to use the parlance of the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, Red Sky crossovers, you know, crossovers mm-hmm. where the Zero Hour is kind of going on in the background and it doesn't have that much of an impact on the actual story. And a lot of them are just kind of weird little wonky time-twisting digressions. Like the Robin crossover is just an excuse to have Tim Drake team up with a young Dick Grayson who is lost in time and comes to Gotham City in the prison. And they have a little adventure together, and it's not really... It, it, it's completely tangential to the actual Zero Hour story. But there's a lot of those. Uh, but as far as ones that are kind of important... Um, I would recommend Guy Gardner Warrior, number 24, actually. Um, uh, the issue number one, or, or four of five, but number one on the cover of Zero Hour leads directly out of what happens in Guy Gardner Warrior, number 24. It's a fun little time-tossed uh, adventure of the guy and a handful of allies as they make their way through various time periods. Guy gets to actually witness firsthand the destruction of Coast City, something that he had uh, barely heard about before Zero Hour struck. You know, he had a lot going on in his own life, you know, so he, he didn't know about his old, his former hometown of Coast City getting destroyed, his old girlfriend Carrie Limbo dying. He gets to experience that firsthand. And also, uh, for people who are fans of Birds of Prey nowadays, uh, Guy Gardner Warrior number 24 holds the answer to how it is Lady Blackhawk can be, is running around in the present. Because, you know, she, hmm. at some point she kind of jumped in time from World War II to the present. Zero Hour is when that happened, and it happened in the Guy Gardner Warrior title. Um, also very significant is the um, uh, a six-part story running through all the Legion titles. It was Legion of Superheroes 60 and 61, Legionnaires 17 and 18, and Valor number 22 and 23. This six-part story was called End of an Era, and just as its title implies, it's it's kind of like uh, what whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow was to Superman. Say this kind of is to the Legion. It's it's their last hurrah. It uh, it, it's sort of a regurg of a, a regurgitation of a lot of important bits of Legion history, or histories, as the case may be. As, uh, as time is coming unraveled all around them, the Legion, m- many ver- different versions of the Legion actually, have to team up and try and take down a few time-powered bad guys who are you know, attempting to take advantage of all the confusion to uh, dominate the 30th century. And in the midst of all this, um, the entire 30th century gets whited out, and um, it's left as a blank slate uh, to be... Uh, started over again in the wake of the Zero Hour uh, event. Um, and, of course, Green Lantern number 55. We already mentioned that one. That's uh, fairly significant. Uh, beyond that, uh, there's a bunch of uh, these tie-ins that are just fun little stories, but uh, relatively few of them that are really you know, germane to what's going on in the, the Zero Hour story itself. Um, I guess I might throw in Flash number 94, because it shows you uh, uh, what was happening in the battle between Flash and Abracadabra leading up to the Flash's appearance and then disappearance in Zero Hour number 4. But yeah, on the whole, a lot of the Zero Hour tie-ins were just um, just little digressions, not, not essential parts of the story. Well, if we're going to talk about zero-hour <clears throat> zero tie-ins, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Booster Gold number zero from just a few years ago. Ah, uh, yeah. I've, I don't know if you've gotten the ch- if you've gotten to that in your uh, in your pile yet. Haven't no. read it, but you better damn well believe that I have it. All right. <laughs> I won't. I won't say any more then. <laughs> Thank you. The uh, in the Dark Stars tie-in 
there's a uh, an appearance by Abin Sir. Did did they kill him? <laughs> did they kill him again? <laughs> no, no. It's that was one of like the the few occasions where Abin Sir popped up and didn't die. Well, I mean, no. technically they wiped <laughs> him out because you know he wasn't from that time, but he didn't technically die. But all he does is die. He's getting a three-issue miniseries soon. I'm expecting him to die at the end of every issue. How did they bring Wally back from this? Was he in the uh, the the Speed Force? Um, actually, I think this is the first time that he really found out about the Speed Force. Um, yeah, he, he, Flash number zero explained how he came back, and it, it explained how his uh, then-girlfriend, uh, uh, Linda Park, acted as his, his anchor is the term Mark Wade used, is the lightning rod that keeps drawing him back to uh, the world he knows, the time and place that he calls home. Uh, it's his love for Linda that helps keep him grounded every time he very nearly uh, you know, blinks out of existence by running too fast. And uh, Flash Number Zero was the first uh, important brush he had with that. And it was uh, in the wake of that that he began to learn what the speed force was and how it worked and how his powers were tied to it. Awesome. So that's Zero Hour. Yeah. <laughs> Are we out of gas? <laughs> well, I, I, I did have a question for 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 Adam before before we had to let him go. Okay. Uh, the last time the Lantern cast talked to you, I wasn't I wasn't there, but uh, you were Blackest Night was wrapping up, and since then, Brightest Day has started and ended, and we didn't get to hear you on the Brightest Day episode that CGS just released, so. I wanted to know how do you feel about Jeff Johns' treatment of the Animonitor and and the DCU as a whole? Well, I'd probably better reserve judgment about uh, how he treated the DCU as a whole because I actually have not yet been able to get my hands on a copy of the last issue of Brightest Day. Okay. <laughs> so we I don't know. We won't spoil. All right, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's Pants promised up and down that he was going to bring his copy of Brightest Day number 24 to Super Show so that we could, you know, look at all look it over, you know, to avoid being possibly spoiled during Super Show. Fortunately, that didn't happen because Pants didn't come through. So I still don't quite know how the story ends. Uh, as far as how uh, he treated the Anti-Monitor, um, I was generally fairly satisfied. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to him for bringing the Anti-Monitor back anyway, so at least he, he's back on the table. Other writers can play with it as well. Um, uh, was, uh, it was a little bit of an anti-climax that it turned out that he's the guy that Deathstorm was uh, trying to bring the White Lantern to. I was expecting it to be... I was kind of thinking Krona, but of course we've seen since then that John's had other plans afoot for Krona. So. But uh, yes, yes, I think... Uh, I think that he's done all right by Anti-Monitor, and I'm, I'm grateful to him for uh, thinking highly enough of the guy for allowing him to be a force in, the, in this uh, well-post-crisis DC universe that we have now. And spe- speaking of Super Show, I just wanted to throw this in there. In the wrap-up episode in which you were continually dropped, <laughs> um, you guys said that uh, the Lantern cast uh, was best in Super Show, and... I'm sure I, we all thank you for that. That's that's pretty cool. Well, well, well deserved, guys. And I'm I'm glad your phone connection's a little better than the one I had uh, for that episode. <laughs> Us too. But yeah, no, like I I said in the talkback thre- talkback thread on the CGS forum, like it means a lot to all of us to to hear such kind words from a group of guys that we all love and respect as much as we do you guys. So so thank you. <laughs> you know? 
Thank you for bringing the vital presence that was your booth to be a part of our show. When's the next one? I need to know. <laughs> Start counting down, Dan. Oh, oh, man. Don't worry. Believe me when I say Brian is already working on it. Yes. yes. And we appreciate he seems a lot less frantic this year than the last two, so he'll probably live through it again. Uh, so, Adam, if someone were to say, I don't know, want to hear you and a trusted colleague talk all about crisis for hours and hours and hours. Where might they go on this vast interweb? <laughs> well, a good first stop would be either thecomicforums.com or comicgeekspeak.com. And uh, look look for the words, the crisis tapes, someplace. You will be glad That's you fair. did. Yes. Your, and iPod if they will wanna... live, your iPod will die, and you will never be the same again. And if they want to hear you reminisce on uh, older issues, where do they go? Uh, go to pretty much the same place, but look for Murd's Time Bubble. You know, as has been mentioned on this episode, I'm just a tiny bit behind on my reading, uh, roughly 10 years behind. And uh, so I have a little side uh, project, a little spin-off podcast, for me to just uh, ramble on solo about uh, these slightly backdated comics that I'm just now getting around to reading. Just uh, sort of a uh, capsule history lesson about uh, these uh, uh, slightly older comics that are new to me. And if they want a good cheesesteak, where should they go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, either Pat's or Gino's, I'm told, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not the authority. And if they want Christmas ornaments, where do they go? <laughs> Murdo's Christmas Barn, definitely. Or Murdo's Christmas Shop in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. But don't go to the Paisley Christmas shop in Stone Harbor, New Jersey. That is the evil antimatter Christmas shop of Quard. Ooh, you have enemies. Awesome. Yes. <laughs> Seriously, a little resort town in South Jersey, and there's two Christmas shops right around the corner from one another. Oh, I was going to say, are they across the street? That would be amazing. <laughs> yes. It, it, it really, it, it, it's sort of like they sprung up in response to us in, 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 in this little parallel universe of theirs. And uh, we, we've sort of been cursing their name ever since. Do you ever get angry and just, like, go out in front and just hurl ornaments back and forth at each other? Oh, actually, there, somewhere in the CGS archives, there is a photo of me uh, standing on the top level of this uh, miniature golf course across the street, po poised like a, like a Quardian Thunderer, ready to throw a putter down through their window. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's awesome. Uh, we should... Really what they do is... They do every year is they set up a catapult and hurl uh, dying Christmas trees across the street. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. It's a Christmas crisis. <laughs> crisis on infinite Christmas barns. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, Adam, thank you so much for agreeing to join us at all hours of the night. <laughs> Oh, believe you me, the hours have just flown by here. I have enjoyed this conversation very much, guys. Thanks for inviting me on to be part of it. Will you be uh, making the wild pig sale towards the end uh, of this year? Yes, yes, I'm quite sure that I will be there. Okay, because it is, it is in November. That's getting close to the busy season for you guys. Hmm, well, that is a consideration. But as long as it's, is it in early November? I don't know the exact dates. Uh, November 5th. Okay, yeah, that's still early enough that, um, I guess, I'll definitely still be able to make that. Cool. So I guess I'll see. Uh, uh, well, I'll at least see you there, Dan. Oh yeah, I'm definitely going. I think Jim's. 
he's, he needs to go to one of these eventually. Yeah, yeah, I really, really want to go to this one. And Chad will be, oh, wait. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm working... I'm working on my teleportation devices right now. <laughs> uh, well, if anything is going to be worth, you know, developing, you know, technology that's still a few centuries out of the reach of modern science, Chad, it would be the Wild Peak sale. <laughs> <laughs> Okie doke. Uh, shall we wrap up? Let's do it. Okay. The end of the episode, the beginning of tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to email us, lanterncast at gmail.com. We have a website, lanterncast.com. You can email all of us individually at lanterncast.com, uh, Jim, Dan, Chad, Jason, or James. We have a forum and a Facebook page that you can get to from our website, uh, also a Twitter, and we have a brand new voicemail number. Now, Again. now this one, we, we've gone through a few voicemail numbers, but this one is actually one worth switching to. And the number is 708-LANTERN. Hooray! <laughs> yeah, dramatic pause. <laughs> James, leave that silence in. <laughs> and uh, I think that's about it. We're on iTunes. Yeah. And if, if they want to contact Murd? Um, oh, his, his home phone number is... No. Oh, <laughs> uh, you... Now, murd at comicgeekspeak.com. That's M-U-R-D. And if you're listening to this show and you're not listening to Comic Geek Speak, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, they're the reason the LanterCast exists, so Indeed. go give them a few downloads. And uh, we'll close on that. So long, everybody. Good night. How you doing, Adam? Oh, I'm doing fine. Yep, wing capacity 100%, ready to fly. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh.